You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. Happy New Year 2021. Hopefully it's a lot more fruitful for basketball than 2020 was. And to start the, start the year, um, we've got a very special bumper episode. We went for three hours. I think that's the longest uh, that I've done. Um, and uh, it was with none other than Steve Veer. He's the head of uh, basketball operations for Luol Deng. Uh, most notably, obviously, in the UK for, for Deng Camp, the top 50 camp uh, for the best uh, young players in the country. But of course, also, he's a former player himself, uh, a very underrated career, uh, from what I told from many other people uh, that saw him play when he was a, a youngster, pure point guard, um, high IQ, great vision, um, but spent the, pr- pr- spent the majority of his career uh, in, in NBL Division I uh, with a little stint with the Leicester Riders before he ended up um, or ultimately hanging up. He did a couple other little bits and bobs with, with NASA and uh, Medway Park Kent Crusaders. Um, but yeah, this was a really good conversation. Uh, he's been a, a much requested guest uh, because of his uh, discussions on Twitter around the state of the game and British basketball in general. Uh, he's now in LA. Uh, he relocated in 2017 and he's a, an assistant coach with Sierra Canyon um, High School uh, with the girls program there, which is one of the powerhouse uh, programs in the state. So there was a lot of interesting discussion around the comparisons between the British and American game. So yeah, a lot of value in this conversation. Uh, one, I think that uh, is a great way to start the new year and get us started with this uh, 2021 of Hoops Fix podcast with British basketball uh, discussion. Just one thing to note is the, the, the video connection, uh, the internet connection was a little bit dodgy at times. Um, audio's fine, but the visuals just uh, pixelate at times a little bit. So uh, just yeah, just a heads up for those that are watching on YouTube. Before we get into the show, as always, uh, please go and take two seconds to check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Hoops Fix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. There you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution or an annual contribution of as much or as little as you'd like. It goes a long way in helping us do the work that we're doing. We cannot do it without your support. So please go and check it out, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. As always, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, leave a comment below. Let me know what you think. You can reach out to me on every single social media platform at hoopsfix or if you prefer some one-on-one interaction, drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. Anyway, that is enough from me. Happy New Year. Uh, here is this week's show with Steve Veer. Steve, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. This is, you're actually the most requested guest uh, I've had over the years. And I know, obviously, we, we had a conversation a long time ago about, I need to get you on. Uh, and, we, and we sort of semi-agreed it, but then never sorted out the date. And finally, here we are, last day of uh, 2020, making it happen. So hopefully, it will be a, it'll be a good conversation to, to sort of head into the new year. There's obviously a bunch of stuff to go into. Um, and I think before we get into all the present day stuff and kind of what you're doing at the moment, uh, it's always good to go back to the beginning uh, and talk about your playing days because, you know, from everyone I speak to, and of course, like I said to you last night, um, I have my own memories of you uh, playing back in the yeah. day. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about the early, the early years and, and how you ended up first uh, playing basketball, what, what put the ball in your hand? Yeah, I mean, it was my, my dad, you know, so quite rare for, you know, dads to be coaches back then. So my dad was a coach. I have a twin brother and a, an older brother. And um, I think it was around about six. We keep going back and forth, but around about six and, and James would be eight. And me and my twin would be six. Um, my dad kind of just, you know, kind of said, I, I coach basketball. Why don't you come down and just give it a go? And he was running camps at, at Richmond Jaguars out of this youth project. And um, 
we kind of just fell in love with it. You know, you hear that story when people just pick up the ball at a young age and they just they just fall in love with it. We play, we still played other sports. So, you know, my twin brother, Mark, was really good at football. So he was like on the fence of what to do. Uh, James got very good at basketball quick, very quickly. And then I was just kind of like, yeah, I like it, but I don't love it. Uh, my brothers play it, my dad does it. So I, I was kind of the, you know, I think James referred to me as the third string, which is kind of embarrassing, but it's true. Um, I was always the third string, the youngest twin, the youngest in the family. And I was like, yeah, I like it. Um, and I just kind of play with my brothers and that was what I, how I started playing, um, at six years old. So, yeah. James, I did actually speak to James very briefly. Uh, and he said that, uh, you know, him and his brother used to give you beatings. You were the one that was always getting beat. And he thinks that that's what kind of gave you the, the competitiveness that in the long term actually ended up with you being the best player out of all three of them. I think so. I think, you know, for anyone that's the youngest sibling, just in everything, you know, it's just, especially sport. And we had a, a hoop in our in our back garden and then um yeah I, I would be getting beat up by both of them so yeah i think it definitely helped me but um it did also i had a choice to make do i really want to do this um and we'll probably get onto it later but there was a time where i was going to quit when i was quite young i was like i'm not going to do this and it was actually my mum who who persuaded me to stay uh in the sport and um it's kind of why i carried on but it has its advantages being the youngest but also you know it can take a hit on your confidence and there was times where i was like yeah i'm probably going to stop doing this so um so yeah but we can get onto that later but yeah how crucial do you think like you know starting at six is super young especially in you know in the uk like as you well know like most players are starting 14 15 16 um how big of an advantage do you think it is in terms of development of basketball iq and just general skill base to be starting at such a young age yeah it's huge you know there's there's no you know when you see all me and my two brothers play we, we, we're skilled and have iq you know we're not the most athletic but um anyone when you see us play from a young age growing up you know joe white was one of the first ones to say when we were younger that they're so small but man they're so skilled and they just see the game they know what they're doing so i think that's something that you you know you can learn very early on and for us playing so so much and so so young um you just pick up habits and you don't know you're picking them up you're just playing for fun you know you're literally just oh, i'm going to practice i'm just going to bounce the ball i'm going to shoot i'm going to do some stuff and then when you start getting older and you start figuring out oh, i actually learned that from really young um and there's no secret what i say about british basketball is you can't it's criminal kids are starting so late it's, it's, it blows my mind that i you know i'm 30 seven now and back when i was i was able to play at six you know that's crazy when you look at where we are now and you know kids aren't playing they're picking other sports primary school there's nothing in primary schools or there is some you know i get some bbl teams hammer me for we do this but it's not on it's not on a mass scale you know and it's um it's it's something that definitely on if you look at british basketball where there's some there's some pitfalls that need fixing you know kids can't start at 14 you know you're already way behind um and it really hit home when my twin brother started coaching in in Texas when I went out there and he coached the under 10 team. And I just came to watch. And I'm like, these kids are better than our 14-year-olds. It's not even close. They're running ball screens. They're, they're shooting. They're just small, right? They're just really small. But you could tell, like, man, they're just picking up stuff. And there was no real kind of offense. They're just playing. But I was like, yeah, this is crazy. This is a little gym in San Antonio that my brother's running the team. Now you think mass America and, and stuff. So... Yeah, it's something that I can't get my head around why we're not pushing kids to play at a younger um, age because it's the hook. Like I said, you know, at my age, it's like really got me into it and my two brothers are playing. And then that's the age where you start, you know, you get to 10, 11. What sport am I going to You become? Maybe not a multi-sport kid. You become like concentrated on one. 
um and you know kids aren't even in the sport so yes it's a it, it blows my mind and it, it really does annoy me a lot so yeah what, what was the um sort of the level of provision that you had as a six-year-old like playing like what was the actual environment that you were playing in because i would assume you know there probably wasn't a lot of local leagues that were set up or no so we, for six-year-olds yeah there was there was some central leagues i think under under 12s or maybe under 10s and we always played up so my dad didn't care we were so small as well like if you I mean, I'm 5'11 now, but I, I, if I didn't have this growth spurt, God, I would have been, you know, hitting just over five foot. But we were so small and we played up in these baggy uniforms and, you know, just we. So I think at seven and eight, we were playing under 10s, under 12 leagues. So um, and that's a, another topic that kids, you know, we don't do is, you know, it's crazy when I look back and I'm like, how are we not letting kids play up and that type of stuff? So. We were, we were playing a lot of, um, you know, we're practicing pretty much every day. Uh, my dad had keys to the gym, which was huge. Um, we had a lot of camps. So he was bringing over American coaches. So I, I remember when I was really young, like seven or eight, we had um, an American guy come over called Mark Carter and he was running camps. We had 50 kids in the gym, like under 10s. And all I remember was this guy just kept drinking water. He had a kidney, something wrong with his kidney. He was drinking like gallons and gallons of just, that's all, he was just constantly just drinking water. I'm like, and um, there were so many of us. There was just so many of us playing basketball. And it was a camp. And this American guy, he was huge. He was like 6'10", American guy. I'm like, wow, this is some American guys teaching us. And we learned so much in that, that week camp. And then that's when this American thing came in with my dad, where we were going out for camps and American coaches were coming here. And he was one of the first people um, that was actually like pushing people to get to America for camps. I remember, um, you know, me and my brothers always went out every year, every summer to, to basketball camps. So, yeah. So at what point did it become a serious pursuit for you and you decided, like, this is what you want to focus on? Um, well, my dad and brothers were probably like, really, it was that late? It was honestly when I was 17. Because what happened was, you know, my, we, we started Richmond Jaguars. My dad moved over to Chesington Wildcats with Jack Mewski, Um And I didn't play. I got no court time. And everyone's, you know, when I started coaching, it was something that I really felt I actually know what it's like not to play. When everyone's like, oh, you've always started, you've always been a... Not when I was younger, you know, from, you know, 13 to 16, 17, I didn't get any court time. My twin brother started on the team at the under-15 Passerelle League. Uh, my older brother was, you know, the best player with Chris Jeremiah. Um, and they were winning championships. And I'm literally traveling on a bus, sitting on a bench and getting no court time, like none. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, why am I doing this? And, you know, at the time, my mum and dad had split. So I was living with my mum. My older brother, James, lived with my dad. So it was me and my twin brother and my mum. And I'm kind of salty. Like, you, you're getting all this court time. And I'm getting no burn at all. So, you know, it, it was a point where I said to my, I remember speaking to my mum about it. I'm like, yeah, this is why. Why am I doing this? You know, he clearly favours my twin brother. James is really good. He's playing for to England at the time. We were winning championships, end up. I think the under-15 team beat London Towers in the final that year. And I'm just in a baggy kit, never getting on. So she said, well, just just go back to Richmond Jaguars and just play local league. Why don't you just do that? It's local. You don't have to travel so much. So then Dave Austin, who set up the club with my dad, I went back to him and said, can I play? And he was shocked. He was like, why would you play here when you're at Chesington? I'm like, I'm not getting on the court. So he said, yeah, of course. Like, of course you can play. So then I end up just playing local league, like under-16s, and just enjoying it. And then... Uh, that's when my twin brother Mark went to America. He got a scholarship, and then I remember I was like, "What? What about me? Am I going to get a scholarship?" And then my dad was like, "No, you're not good enough. Like, you're not you're not going to go." So then that kind of took a hit on me, and I was like, saying to my mum, 
you know, if I'm not going to go to America and I'm going, what's the point of me continuing to play? So it was really tough for me at that age to make a choice. And then when I was playing for Richmond Jaguars, Walid Mumani, who's now my closest friend, he was the best man at my wedding. He used, he lived in Brentford. So he would come down and just practice with us. And I remember Dave Austin saying like, we've got this guy, Wally Mumani, like he's really good. He plays Ealing Tornadoes because Jack had since moved to Ealing Tornadoes. And he came down and me and him just instantly got on like really well. You know, it was me and him were the two best players on the team. He would go back and play National League with Ealing. And he invited me to the RAF Final Fours. He's like, we're in the Final Fours. So I went, I was like, I want to go down and watch it. I went down to watch it and I was like, I want to play on this team. Like I, you know, it was it was him, Gary McCann, Rob Smith, Rob Smith, um, Sammy Rahman. Um, the team was just so good, and they ended up winning it. And then after that game, I walked up to Jack Mewski and I was like, "I want to play for you guys." As a seventeen-year-old, like who was going to quit? Who would, he had no idea who I was. And if you know Jack, he's like, "Are you good?" And I said, "Yeah, ask Walid." So Walid was like, "He's really good," but he didn't really. I wasn't that good, so. Um, yeah, that was it. Jack was like, yeah, come to practice. So I went, I went with Waleed and I was like, look, when's your next practice? It was like three weeks later. I went down there and then that's how I joined in Tornadoes. I kind of left my dad in Chesington, my twin brothers in America. And I'm like, I'm just going to play for Ealing. And that's kind of how, that's when my, that's when I really took it serious. Because when you, when you go to Ealing, everyone's really good and you can't hide. Like I was like, oh my God, these guys are so much better than the guys at Richmond. But I was like, I don't know if it's a good idea. Um, and Jack, you know, probably my favorite coach of all time because he just started just hitting me real quick. He's like, you're not very good. You're going to be good. I know you are. I can see it. You're going to get better. And um, yeah, from there, it just kind of took off. And that's when I started to actually make a name for myself. Before, no one knew who I was. It was just James Veer, Mark Veer, and I was just kind of the third string twin. So yeah, that's how it kind of started. So yeah. At that point, did it start clicking for you in your head that like, I'm getting good. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm potentially able to pursue a career in this. Like, at what point did that switch flip? That switched when Jack asked me to come to men's practice. So I've probably been at Ealing. You know, I was, I was 16, 17. We were just strictly under 18s. And Anton Fraser was the coach. He was a starting point guard for the men's team. So Jack wasn't my coach when I first got there, and he had just come back from America. And he is hard nosed. My God, young coach point guard he took me under his wing and he's just like and he could see me getting better very quickly and he's like i'm gonna ask you to come to men practice so i was like oh, i'm not ready you know there's ryan malik uh, pierre you know there's all these guys and i'm like I'm, I'm not ready for that um he's like you i don't care you're coming um so then he persuaded jack and then he lets me come and he starts killing me at practice like anton's guarding me full court taking it from me pushing me around i was like hold on you invited me here and then I got it. I saw what he was trying to do. He's like, you know what? Like, you think you're you're okay with your under eighteen team? This is where the big boys play. And um, I, I started to like figure out that I'm too skinny, I'm too slow, but there's things that I can do to actually be good at this. Um, I, you know, I became a really good three point shooter. And then when people took that away, I started to like figure out that I could score inside. I became really good off the pick and roll, and my IQ just started getting better and better. And then my confidence grew. I was like, you know what? I'm I'm good. Like, I know I'm good. And then we started playing under 18s. And I was just, me and Waleed and Rob Smith were just killing teams. You know, we were just, I was putting up like 30, 40 points. Um, so I was like, I'm, I'm good. I was, and then my confidence started to grow playing men's team. And then Seti Frederick asked me to play an under 20 team. And I, I would say within three months, I was someone that was probably going to give up. I'm not sure what I was doing. 
to actually like, you know what? I'm actually pretty good. And England, England were knocking on the door and they were coming to our games and Matthew Ryder at Rough and Ready was, was coming to watch us. Um, and that's when streetball.co.uk was starting to happen, right? So then it was like all these message boards about Steve here, Wally Ealing, and they, you know, they're not better than these guys. And, you know, it became a thing. And yeah, it was just kind of rapid. I mean, three months, it was just like, wow, like um, I'm going to start taking this serious. And I never looked back. I really didn't, you know? So yeah, that was kind of it. When you talk about that, that Ealing group, um, you know, when I speak to people about sort of uh, historical junior teams and stuff, and that that group is obviously mentioned a lot, and you know, you and Waleed being the duo that obviously had a, a very closely run career for for a uh, for a big period of time there. Um, can you talk about that that group, like who you had, and sort of the dominance that you had at, at junior level? Yeah, the crazy thing is, and I don't want to take this away from anybody, but when everyone talks about Ealing, they go to the under twenty team, the Pierre Henry Fontaine. Sammy Rahman um, and Walid was obviously heavily on that team. Gary McCann, Shadozi, um, you know, the team was really good. But we were the, the same parallel. We were the under-18 team. We actually run the treble. They only won the double. So um, we won everything, you know. And the team was, I was starting point guard. Adrian Burrow um, was the shooting guard. One of the, you know, he was the one that had handles. Up. He taught me how to start crossing people over because before I got there, I was just a shooter, you know, a kid from Southwest London that, you know, could shoot, but didn't have that much swag to his game. And he was very underrated, like a really, really good um, uh, shooting guard. And then um, we had Rob Smith at the three. Jamie Henderson, who's probably the most underrated guy. No one knows him. I brought him from Richmond Jaguars to come over because we needed some size. We were very small. Um, so he was like the four for us. And then Wally played the five, which is crazy when you look at him now as a six foot four, you know, he's never, he's always been that height. So, um, that was our team. And then we had some really nice pieces off the bench. You know, um, we had, um, Jermaine McLeod, who no one really knew much about. We had a guy called Evan, we had Aaron Fromm, you know, guys that don't play anymore. I mean, out of our team, you know, I mean, Rob Smith played men's and, and juniors, uh, but really, Walid and me were the only two that carried on. Everyone else kind of just played junior basketball. And the story of British basketball is when you get to 18, you need to make some money. It's, uh, I'm going to stop playing. So, you know, they stopped playing. But, yeah, we won, we won everything. We won the league. We won the, the, the cup uh, and, and the playoffs, you know. And we were a small team. But Anton Fraser had us playing some – we pressed all game. That's all we did. 2-2-1 two, two, press. It was called 62. Everyone knows Jack Musi's – yelling 62 from the sideline I think he still does it but we pressed we played zone we we trapped um and we started running ball screen stuff that was kind of it and Tom was like you're good in ball screens and we were one of the first kind of junior teams then because a lot of people running flex and motion where we started bringing in this more ball screen stuff and then Seti Frederick with the under 20s had some nice offense that we kind of used in our under 18 team but yeah I mean we we were up and down the country on a crazy schedule just running through teams and we started picking up a bit of a following like these guys are pretty good and then you know when we we beat durham uh raf under 18 playoffs in the semi-final i think everyone was taken back like wow they beat that powerhouse academy um because westminster warriors everyone had that rivalry i'm sorry there was no rivalry we were housing them every time we played them everyone was like there's this rivalry and nama will say now yeah you know we knew we were never going to beat you guys but um you know it was when we went national and played durham who had a really good team um I think when we beat them, it was like, whoa, this, this team is, is legit. Um, yeah, we cleaned up. We won everything that year. And it was crazy because of my first year at Ealing. You know, it was just kind of joined them, didn't expect to win everything, and, and we did. So, yeah, that team 
I still speak to those guys today. You know, I, I, I love that team. And Anton Fraser is one of my favorite people. And we still speak now. And now my dad, he's giving me advice on being a dad. So it's super cool that me and him are still close. So, yeah. When you talk about the, the landscape of the, the rest of junior basketball, um, obviously you, your generation has a lot of sort of names in it. Uh, there's a lot of talent in it. Like, who were the other guys that, or on the other teams, and I guess the biggest names that uh, you were going against? Who were the standouts um, that you remember from from that era? Yeah, I mean, our, our biggest rivalries in, in London were, I mean, there weren't. That's what's crazy. There was like five London teams, right? And you look at it now. I mean, there's probably five teams in one borough, but it was it was us, uh, London Towers, uh, East London Royals, Westminster Warriors, and Walthamstow Spitfires. They were like the five main teams. Um, so Wolfhamstow were, were actually—I don't think they're around long, but they had Tanner Adu, you know, um, he was their main guy. Carly from Henry was there. They had some other guys uh, that were good. London Towers—they um, were just a team built of just really good players, but no real standouts I can remember. Um, Westminster Warriors, obviously, you know, just because they were so close to us, you know, being in West London, Cali Woods, um, Patrick. Um, you know, those guys. And then um, I, I think East London Royals were very underrated. Uh, Marlon Henry, Jason Brooks was really good. Um, they were tough. Like they were our, they were the team that beat us in the league. And then um, we had to beat them on a double header. We had to play Brentwood Fire and then them the same day to win the league. So they were the only team I think that actually beat us that year. They were good. They were tough. Um and I say all this, like, we're lucky Richard Midgey was not in the country. Like, he's an 8-3. And, like, you know, he was in high school. So Richard Midgey came back and played at Sussex or Towers. I mean, he was that good. I don't think we're beating them. Um, so I look back at my junior career and everyone's like, you know, you're probably the best, one of the best point guards of your generation. I'm like, yes, but small asterisks. If Richard Midgey was in the country, there's no way because he was way better than me and, you know, probably one of the best junior players ever to play in, in the UK. So, um, yeah, we had a nice rivalry for that year. And then when we moved to the under-20s, it was the, the kind of the academy stuff where, you know, where you know it was um, Dougie's team up there. They were a big rival for us at East Durham, Birmingham, those type of teams. But, um, but yeah, I would, I would say they were the, the standout teams. I'm probably missing some guys and some teams, but um, I don't want to be arrogant, but we didn't really care about other teams. We really didn't. We got, we got so confident that we were just like, who we play, I don't care. We play. I mean, remember Devin Adams' team and Ross Colton, they were up. Um, they had a nice team as well. But yeah, we were just running through teams and enjoying that season. So um, sorry if I missed anybody, but they're guys that jump out. Yeah, on the topic of uh, Richard Midgley, like, just like you said, he is um, one of the names that everyone. When I, I like asking people who they think is the you know the greatest junior British basketball player of all time or whatever, and he's one of the names that consistently comes up. When you talk about his level of talent, why he was so good, what separated him, like what would you say? Um, he could just do everything. You know, I remember a story I haven't told anyone is that we went to a camp in the US. So we went out to this like Nike camp. We got invited, and that was my first year finishing Elin. So he was you know. An, and we were both on the England set up and, you know, he rarely came back. He just came back to play for, for England. So we went out to this camp and um, the one Wagner was there. I had no idea who he was, but it was just the top American kids. And then there was like me, Richard, and my twin brother went as well. And then there were some other guys from Europe. And this guy, everyone was talking about the one Wagner, number one kid, whatever. Right? And Richard's like, you know, and we only met at that camp. We didn't know each other very well. And um, he's like, I can't wait to play him. I was like, okay. I don't want to play against him. I was like, okay. They're talking about him going to the NBA straight from high school. And he's like, 
yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to find out when we played him. So that was his mindset straight away. I was like, okay, dude. Uh, he didn't do any drills. The one Wagner, he sat on the side, ice in his knee. When games came at night, he jumped on the court. Like, didn't stretch or anything. And we saw him play the night before we went to watch it. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. Like, just just doing everything. And you could just see Richard just watching him. Like, he just watched him the whole time. So they played the next night. And then um, we finished our game because I was in the lower league and, and Richard was in the top league. So we, I came over to watch it. Um, you know, I'm not going to be biased. You know, like, Richard's battling with him. Like, they're going at it. Like, both of them were just going at it. I would say, you know, the one Wagner got the better of him, but it was, it was not like he was struggling. Like he was really like he had him playing. He was like guarding him. He was getting really frustrated with him. And Richard's a really good defender as well, a very underrated defender. And he was guarding him full court. He was getting after it. Um, and they ended up just losing. It was a really close game, but you know they both had heavy points. And then, you know, after the game, he's pissed. Goes to the side, you know, and I go up to him and just start talking about. It. He's like, nah, like. Nah, it's, it's, I gotta get better. Like, no, nah, I, I want to play him again. And he's just like has that competitive nature about him. Um, and then that night, you know, we're just hanging out at the dorms, and I'm I'm really good at table tennis. Like, it's something that I've always been good at. And he ter- he's terrible. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna. You know, he, we, I was like, you want to play table tennis? So we start playing, and I'm just killing him. He's terrible. He's never played before. And I was like, oh my god, dude, like, come on. And he's getting so frustrated. <laughs> so so like, why? So then, why does he become better than me in four days? So we play at the end and he's just like better than me. And I'm like, all right, so now I understand why you're so good. You're super competitive. You pick stuff up really, really, really easily. And you just don't settle for anything. Like, you know, you just played against number one guy in high school and you're, you did really well. And then you, you know, I beat you up table tennis. Who cares about table tennis? But he just, he's that guy. So I think that was the insight I got from him, you know, and people that know him better than I do. Um, Cause we're, we're pretty good friends now. You know, we, we got a friendship after that camp. I think that's what drove him. Obviously, super talented, really good. But that gave me an insight into like, wow, this guy is different. And we were 17 then, right? So I think he had that edge over everybody. And then when he came back and started playing for Towers and Men's, it was just, oh, my God, this guy is just, you know, he's so good. So for my generation and him being born, you know, 83 like me, I I haven't seen, you know, outside of probably, you know, Andrew Sullivan. I saw bits of him. I think Chris Jeremiah was really, really good. But as an 83, it's not close. Like, there's nobody better than him as an 83-born that I've seen in the UK. No way. Really? Uh, obviously, you, you saw the wall a lot as well as a, as a, as a younger player. Kind of, when you talk about the levels, where would you compare them? How would you compare them? Well, I mean, so the was always playing men's at Brixton, you know, and he was, he was younger and he didn't play that much. So every time we played Brixton, you know, it's Eric Boateng, we played against mainly he didn't play much for them so i never really played much against the wall and we would we would beat brixton pretty easily when i was at Ealing. they weren't that great that's you know eric and brandon was really good their point guard and some other guys you know but he rarely played junior basketball like he was always on the men's team and back then you know like there were you know games were saturday sundays and you know you just played one team there wasn't much you know when i played men's with Ealing, it was rare because junior games were on the same time so you couldn't really play a lot back then you know, I think they've kind of changed that where, you know, obviously EABL and WABL are Wednesday games, but it was just weekend. You're just trying to cram in games. And his, his kind of priority at Brixton was um, men. So I didn't get to see him play that much. The, the first time I got to really see Loire was when we went to France and we played in a tournament that Jack Muski took out uh, a kind of select team to represent England. It was a tournament, a Nike tournament in Douai, France. And, you know, we had me, Walid. Um, some other couple guys from Ealing and then we took like Nick George, Keith Jarrett, 
Rich Wellings, Chris Fredericks, um, and then, you know, Loire was obviously our main guy. And he had just finished his freshman year at Blair. So he came to the tournament and he was Michael Dengman. And everyone knew he was good. But, you know, at, when we go into the tournament, we felt like Nick George was our best player. And first game comes in and it's just like, you know, he didn't even practice. He just kind of came a little bit later, propped up, you know, Jack started him, obviously. And you're like, yep. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, he was shooting threes. He was crossing everyone over. He looked very much like a Joe. I was like, oh, okay. Like, he's really good. Um, and then, you know, he made, we end up finishing, I think, second in that tournament. He made all, all, All-Star all Five. Um, that's when I was like, oh, this guy is really good. And I remember Rob Smith, who, you know, he was on a team. He's from Oxford, but played on our under-18 team and 20 team. He's like, I'm going to get his autograph. And everyone was killing him. Everyone was like, dude. He ain't that good. He's like, I'm telling you, he's going to the NBA. And that was like the first time that I'd heard someone say he's going to the NBA. He was 14. And everyone was just like, stop being a fan, you know. And then now you look back at it, he's like, he probably should have got his autograph. It might be worth something. You know, he got it a 14-year-old autograph. But that's the first time I saw Lowell play, um, like on an on a, you know, up front and me being on the same team and against that competition. Um, but obviously different positions with Richard, him being more of a small forward. But, you know, like um I, I just remember that Rafa Get Ready year when he came back again the year after. And it was just like, yeah, this, this guy is just, I mean, he's just so different to everybody. Just more athletic. You know, you could just see you know, just how he read the game. He could do everything, you know, six, seven, six, eight, dribbling, shooting. He, he was just so good. Um, but at that Rafa and Ready, I still think Richard was one of the best players. I really do. You know, he was playing in the men's against Andrew Sullivan. He was on the West team. Him and Jermaine Forbes were going at it, you know, and that, I, you know, I'm biased because I, you know, I know, obviously I know Lawal really well now. I've been working for him for 12 years, but I still think Richard Midgley is the, the guy. I really do. If someone was to say, name one guy who was that good in the UK, I'm I'm saying Richard Midgley. I really am. Did you did you think that Midgley was going to the NBA? Yeah. Really? Absolutely. I think he would have if he didn't get, if his, you know, he had really bad back and the injury, you know, but at Cal, he was starting his stats there are crazy. Um, he had NBA teams looking at him. Yeah, I really do. I really do. And I think his injuries is what really hampered him. You know, I remember when my last year playing at Leicester Riders, we played against Everton and we hadn't seen each other for years. And, and we caught up after the game for like an hour. We just sat and caught up about everything. And he was just telling me how much his injuries were just killing him. It was just constantly every day, just rehabbing and trying to get on the court the GB stuff was tough for him. You know, he just couldn't do back-to-back games. And, you know, so I think injuries really hurt him. But, um, yeah, I think he would have gone to the NBA. I really do. You you mentioned it there. And, obviously, the jerseys in the background, rough and ready. Always like to talk about rough and ready and what a sort of legendary tournament it was. Kind of what was your experiences of rough and ready? Obviously, you played in it. Um, your memories of it, kind of, and why it was such a special event. I think, for, for me personally, rough and ready was a shock. Because, you know, when I, what I was talking about earlier is I was going to quit basketball and then I went to Ealing and then I decided oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. And then I've got Matthew Ryder coming to our games. And I'm like, and everyone's like, that's the guy from Rough Ready. Because my older brother James got picked for it, but he got injured. So he never played in it. So I knew of it and I went to the tournament. And when you go there, you know, even when you, got, you run in Hoopsticks Classic at Brixton, it's your setup's very similar. It's, you know, when you've got the crowd on both sides and you walk in, you're just like, Phew, like, it's just, you know, and I never seen anything like it. So, me going in, I think I was, you know, my brother was maybe 17, 16, 17. So I was like 15, 
I went in there and was just like, oh my God, like this is crazy. I, I didn't want to play. I, was, I didn't even love basketball then. I was like, I'm so nervous for my brother to play in this. Um, so then two years later, I've got Matthew Ryder coming to watch me play and he was coming to a lot of our games. And then it's kind of like you and you, you rock up on the sideline and everyone's like, you know, our hoops fix is here. It was very like that. It's like, oh, you know, Matthew, Matthew Ryder, I think he's coming to our game. So anytime he came to games, I was like, I got to play because this guy is picking. It's like you. You assume he's picking everybody when he's not. He's got a team behind him. And, you know, I was like, he's if I don't play well, he's not going to. And I would just play so well every time he came to the gym. Whoever we played against, I would just, you know, just play so well. And I'd always have that extra adrenaline, like I've got to play well. And then I remember I got selected. Andrew Norton called me and was like, you know, I think you're going to be in Rough and Ready. We just came out of a committee meeting. It looks like you're in. And me and her were very, very close um because she just liked my game every time we went to Brixton she was like yeah I love your game we just you know she's like I think you made it but don't tell anybody and I was like all right so I went to practice like yo I think I made rough and ready and uh, Waleed was pissed he's like what do you mean you made it I'm top scorer on our team I was like I think I made it that's what I've, I've been like, someone's been telling me and then um then the program came out and I'm in the program you know you got Lawal's name and then I'm there and I'm like not only did I make the the tournament it's got like Steve here makes you know makes three pointers like layups or something like that I was like, oh, no, now I've got to play. I just wanted to get the, the the uniform and the shoes and just say I play rough already. I was like, now I'm in the, oh, I was like, man. And then Roger Ozana called me and was like, we're doing a radio show and you're on it. I was like, what? He's like, you need to come down to Brixton. Um, yeah, you and Ryan Cadogan um, are, are the guys from Ealing that are going to be on the show. I was like, what? So it was like, um, I think it was Choice FM or a, a, radio, a radio show like that. Um so now I'm like, I'm going to a radio show and I'm talking about Rough and Ready. And I was like, this is crazy. I was like, what? And then, you know, Leon Bernard and all these guys in the room and I'm, they don't know who I am. They have no idea. And I'm just like, like, yeah, I'm the guy, yeah, I'm Steve Veer from Ealing. And I could tell everyone was like, who's this little white dude? Like, is he playing or is he Ryan's like guy? Is he, is he is... I, it was so crazy. So, you know, from a, a year of just, you know, you know, having a good year at Ealing, I'm now in the, the kind of brochure uh, that everyone's going to get the game so that was the start of it and then when we played I looked at my team and Andrew Norton's coaching me she's like yeah yeah and I was like so I knew Andrew was pushing me to play on the team and then uh, I had pops on my team so I'm looking at our roster and I'm like and we look pretty good our team was like yeah we're pretty good and then um, three points for a dunk which no one told us I, I probably didn't I wasn't listening because to me I'm like who cares about dunks I'm not getting any of those but it was three points for a dunk in rough already so Keith Jarrett's on the other team just dunking everything. I'm looking at the score. I'm like, why do they have all these points? Like, he's just dunking. And I didn't know. So I'm complaining. You know, that's, if everyone knows me, I'm a complainer on the court. So I don't care who's watching. I'm going up to the table. I'm like, you've got it wrong. And then they're like, I'm just like three points for a dunk. I'm like, what kind of stupid rule is that? So I'm like moaning about that. So we end up losing. Keith Jarrett's just dunking all over us. So Pops is dunking the other end, but they're just getting more dunks. So we end up losing that game. And then um, the next you know, Santa Atar, Wally, their team is just stacked. And then Lowell flies in and goes on their team. And I'm like, why is he on their team? So it was short-lived. We had one game, we got smoked. Keith Jarrett dunked all over us. Um, got my uniform, got my shoes. Uh, I played pretty well. I think I hit like five, six, three. So I was happy. I was like, all right, we're done. And then just enjoyed the weekend, you know, kind of just enjoyed, soaked up all the the music. You know, I think, you know, Miss Dynamite was there. Um, it was a cool event, you know, and then, um, just end up watching and, and kind of being around a basketball fraternity. And then then people started to like, kind of like oh, yeah, yeah. you know, Steve, yeah, we know, we know that guy is. So I think Rough and Ready definitely helped me put my name on the map 
outside of junior basketball. I think everyone under 18s kind of knew who I was. But, you know, like Leon Bernard, Snoop Burton, those guys were kind of like come up to me, like, man, you can shoot. I remember you at a radio station. I was like, yeah, that, that was me. It was kind of weird. So I think Rough and Ready definitely helped kind of put me on, you know, a map for outside of just the bubble of junior basketball, I think, yeah. Do you, do you think that, um, you know, I feel like one of the things that was unique about Rough and Ready is that, you know, really put British players on a pedestal, you know, like you, you guys going to the radio station and yeah. The, 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 the sort of the promo stuff that was done around it was way ahead of its time in terms of video video promos and you know filming things and, and everything else like do you feel like um sort of your involvement with it you've seen it up close you've carried that forward and sort of that played a role in you know the stuff that you've done since with den camp obviously in the uk and everything else yeah i do i think it's you know when i look back at it i was i remember you know ryan cadogan had you know he was well known for his, his hairstyle his cornrows and stuff and um they did a whole campaign in Brixton around it where he was on, I think, on the underground, uh, on the Victoria Line, you know, on the sub, they had stuff like that. He had posters going up and then Pierre, they had stuff for him the year after. But, I mean, way ahead of the time, you're right. Like, And then radio stations and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think Rough and Ready did a, a great job of that. And, you know, now looking forward, it's everything, right? It's just the hype and highlight tapes and your brand as a player and just what you can get on. It's just, it's evolve so much now that it's it's pretty much you know if you don't have any brand or any media social media exposure to you know as a player or to your academy or team you just you're behind you're behind not only in domestic in the uk but in the us you're just behind so it's something that with with Denkam and you know we've had conversations about this of getting your help with it and how to cut highlight tapes and i listened to neil hopkins one yesterday about um you know, he's like the Jackie Moon of MyScope. He was saying about Photoshop and Adobe, and I was just like, yeah, same with me. I've been learning all that stuff. So, you know, it's huge. It's like the new the new wave of, of where we are, and um, I think you're right. Rough and Ready was definitely ahead of its time. So from from there, you, you ended up uh, going to the U.S. for, for high school for a, for a short little stint. So so how did that, that move come about, and I guess what we can go into kind of why it ended up being so short-lived? Yeah, I mean, I was good enough then, right? So before my brother went, still salty about it. You know, my, my twin brother went to my older brother's high school. So he, you know, my James had gone there and then Mark followed him two years later. And um, now, you know, um, I've got really good footage. You know, I remember Wally's girlfriend at the time was filming our games and putting them onto like DVDs. That's what it was back then. And she was really good at it. You know, she had she had all this software with her dad who was like some DVD guy. So we were able to get me a DVD for the season. And then um, it was actually Rojo Zana who really helped me, um, which no one really knows. Um, Rojo Zana and Richard Scantabry, they like what they saw at Hosanna, you know, Hosanna Pro-Am. I just kind of went there and, you know, started to, you know, just play. And I got, you know, play really well at those batting the ball runs and stuff. So him and Richard Scantabry said, you know what, I think you, um, you should play in America. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I was kind of looking at doing that. And they said, there's, you know, Richard Scantabry went to Coastal Carolina Division One school. And he's like, I've, I've already reached out to them and they've seen your stuff and they really are interested. I was like, okay. They said, there's a high school in um, South Carolina that will take you. I was like, okay. And they're like, but, you know, do you want to go? I was like, do I want to go? I was like, I need to speak to my dad about it. So I spoke to my dad and then back then you had to go and fly out and see it or just go, right? So luckily, my dad was able to afford for us to take two tickets. You're not allowed to really do it. Um, 
with rules and stuff. I don't know what the rules were, but we ended up meeting this coach in some subway and just got off the plane, went to the subway and sat with him. And I'm like, this is crazy. And he's just going for everything. And they're just talking about finances. So it's like, we can pay for everything apart from flights. That was like, okay, um, can we look at the school? And he's like, no, you're not allowed to go to the school. And I was like, why not? They're like, it's against the rules. I can't get you on the school. So I'm like, we flew all the way here. He's like, yeah. And it was like an hour and he left. He's like, all right, we just let me know. You know, I was like, and back then there was real no emails. It was like, I think my dad was calling from an American like, So we kind of left there, me and him looking at each other. I was like, but he was a nice guy and he had somewhere for me to live at a host family. Uh, and the, the mum was the principal of the middle school. Didn't get to meet them, not allowed. So we kind of sat there and we're in this like deli place. I think it was Slotchky Deli or Subway. I can't remember. And I'm looking at him and then my dad's like, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. I was like, you know, 17, 18. Um, I said, yeah, I think I want to do this. I think I think I do. So my dad like called from a payphone outside the deli and called him and said, yeah, we're in. Like, what do we need to do? He's like, I need to work on your visa. Just go home and figure it out. So I went home and then it was like a month later, I think I was out. I was out there. It was like June, July. Um, and then high school season starts till November. So for basketball. So I go out there, get off the plane and I go to a, a football game. I never seen American football like that. Get off there and it's just crazy. Just like cheerleaders, everything. I was like, it's so cool. And I just get in the stands and everyone knows he's gone to America. When you start speaking, everyone's like, oh my God, your accent, where are you from? So, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time, not not much longer. It was just like every girl was like, oh my God, can you speak? And I was just like speaking all the time. It was crazy. So um, I was able to, to shoot and work out, but I just wasn't able to practice because there was no practice on. So I was just going to school um, in this tiny school. There was like a thousand people there. It was tiny. The gym was tiny. It was really strange uh, school in the middle of nowhere in Orangeburg. It was called Orangeburg Prep. Um, and I was just making friends. It was cool. I was just making friends, kind of whatever. And then um, September 11th happened. So I was out there when, you know, 9-11 happened with the Twin Towers. And I remember the day I'm sitting in the lesson. This girl runs into the class, goes, everyone get to the library. I was like, all right, cool. So then we go to the library and it's just on TV. And I, I really believe it was like Independence Day movie. I thought we were just watching a movie. So I go in there and I'm like, ah, people are crying. People are just like going on. I'm like, what is going on? So I speak to one of my classmates and what's going on? They're like, oh, the, the, the Twin Towers, you know, the Pentagon, it's, you know, planes have crashed into it. And my dumb ass is like, what's the, what's the Pentagon? I was like, I, don't, I didn't even, I had no idea. I was like, I don't know what's going on. So everyone's just kind of, you know, school's out, go home, you know, a girl at the high school, you know, that's who I lived with. So she, you know, we just jumped in her car, we drove home. And then the next day I got called into school and the principals got me and all the other foreign exchange students. We had like two German girls, a, a, a girl from China and another guy. And we're just sitting there and I'm just like, okay, this is strange. And he's like, look, we don't know what's going on, but basically you guys can't stay at the school. You know, like we don't know what's going on with this terrorist attack, but it's not good for our school to keep any foreign exchange students here. So you're going to have to leave. And I was like, I don't, I've been there three months. So it was kind of crazy. I was like, all right. So the coach, I walk out and the coach is standing right there. He was like the US history coach and the basketball coach. He's like, don't worry, I'm gonna come over to the house tonight. We're gonna to talk about it. It's like, cool. So I went home, um, speaking to my parents, they're like, what's going on? I'm like, nah, I've got to leave this school. They're like, what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know. So then the coach comes like, I've got you another high school. I'm like, cool, where is it? And he's like, Conway. I'm like, where is that? He's like, four hour drive from here. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they got nowhere for you to live right now, but you know, you have to leave tonight. 
And I'm like, why? And they said, I have to enroll you in school quickly. The semester, it was like semester timing. You need to get in, get your credits. And I was like, okay. And, and people know me back then. I'm just kind of just go with the flow. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, I like this family, but I was like, all right. So I was kind of like, let's do it. So, you know, the family were really good to me, really great people. They were really upset about it. They're like, you know, younger sisters, they, they were cool, but I was out there really just to play basketball. So I was showing like I was upset, but I was like, I, I really, I'm ready to go. I'm ready just to, to move to this high school. So we drive four hours with a coach. He literally drops me off at the high school. I go into the office. He's like, all right, Steve, I'm out. I was like, okay, let me left. So I'm sitting in this office. They leave me there all day in the office. I'm just sitting there. And they're not speaking to anybody. I'm like, what is going on? No, no mobile phones back then. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, can I make a phone call? They're like, yeah, sure. So I try and call home, but it won't go through. I don't know how to dial international. So I'm just like stuck. And then I remember at the end of school day, this police officer walks in. What's up? He's like, you're coming with me, man. I'm like, you're right? He's like, yeah, you're going to come live with me. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it's just temporary. Don't worry. I was like, okay. I hadn't met the coach yet. I hadn't met anybody. I'm like, what is going on? So I go back to his house. He lives out in the hood. I'm like, what is this? I came from like Orangeburg, which is a huge house. I was like, oh, man, I'm driving through. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, all right, now this is getting a little bit weird. Get to his house and I'm on his couch. I was like, oh, boy. I said, okay, this is not good. So he's like, I've got to go work, man. Okay. I'm sitting in the house and I'm like, ah, this is not good. This is not for me. I was like, this is crazy. I end up staying in his house for like three days. Go into the school, eventually meet the coach. um, And they're like, yeah, you can't come here. And I'm like, why not? And I didn't know this had happened. This had only come to fruition from here. When I got recruited by Coastal Carolina to this Orangeburg prep school, another coach had found out about it. And they weren't happy that this star kid from England had come in. So they were just following me and just going to compliance and saying, he shouldn't, he's not allowed to do it. You can't do it. They recruited him. They did this, they did that. I had no idea who this guy was. I don't know what the school was called. So that's why when I got to Orangeburg prep, even with that stuff, I wasn't going to play there. I transferred to Conway High School. As soon as my transcript, they were putting it through, it got flagged up. He, I think he was the athletic director. He's like, nah, there's no way this guy's moving around. So he just said, nope, you're not playing. So then I had issues with my visa. I had the wrong visa. There was something around me. Not, and then I was just like, ah, oh, this is crazy. So I remember I, I called my mom and she's like, just come home and figure it out. I came home. The first day I land, Jack Majewski called me. He's like, ah, oh, Stevie. I was like, yeah, what's up, what's up, Jack? He's like, you just come to Richmond College. That's when he said Richmond College. He's like, come on. You just practice. Don't worry. You'll go back to America. No problems. And then, you know, Jack. Walid is there. You know, he's my best friend. Our team is really good. I was like, all right. I said, oh. and then he enrolled me in a Spanish course, I think, so I could go to Richmond College. And I stayed. I never went back. It was just like, it was for me. I just rolled back in very, you know, we. it's very much like Holly Winterburn. You know, she's come back and it was the America, the glitz and the glam. And, you know, she had definitely a better experience than me. But you do, you get that sense of home when you, you come back and you're with your people and you're like, all right, I'm going to stay. And then I think it was a really good decision that I ended up staying back. So my sh- three-month America journey was crazy, but, you know, it's something that probably was for the best and I enjoyed my career in England after that, yeah. Uh, at that age, did you quickly give up the idea of returning to the States or was it always in the back of your mind, like, you know, I'm going to have a good season and I'm going to get back out there or like ideally play college ball? Like, What was kind of your thought process? Yeah, so when I went to Richmond College, you know, Jack quickly enrolled me in a Spanish course, but I found out, um, you know, because Roger Ozana heavily helped me, 
is that if you do a BTEC, you're able to split a BTEC over a year and you can use those credits to go to, to college. I knew high school was out because of my age. So Coastal Carolina was still like, look, you, you can come. You just need to do some credits. So I took a BTEC media course at Richmond College and Jack was able to kind of get me a scholarship for it. So I had the idea I'm going to do one year BTEC and I'm going to Coastal Carolina. That was on the cards. That was really what I wanted to do. Um, and then Coastal Carolina just out-recruited me. They're like, we haven't seen him play. He's in England. So when that year ended up, I was like, here's my credits. Um, like, uh, Richard's kind of was great. He's like, look, I'm going to call the coach. I'm going to figure it out. And then it was just like, look, they've got some star guarding. They don't have a spot for you. And they were the only school recruiting me. I had nobody else. And trying to send DVDs and try and get back. It was just like, it was Coastal Carolina or nothing for me. That's kind of what I had in my mind. So then it was like, just finish up, finish up B-Tech Media, play, play with Jack. Um, and then I just made, that year I just got selected for my first England international to go play under 20s as a year young kid with Paul James. We we're going to Greece. So I was like, well, I've got an England national team. So I was like, well, I'll just stay. And then that was it. I kind of just gave up after that. I was like, America's probably not for me and I'll, I'll just stay in England and I'll be, I'll be content with it. So, yeah. And had you, like, after you gave up on the, the sort of the, the US college thing, had you resigned yourself to playing in England or were you still thinking, ultimately, I want to go pro abroad or, like, were you just like, Do you know what, I'm actually happy here. This is a good situation. No, I wanted to go play pro in, in uh, somewhere. And then, man, Roger Zana, I'm shouting you out. He, he actually got me a, a tryout in Germany. So finished um, like the the summer in Hosanna, played really well in that. I think I was on his team. You know, we played like West Side team, and you know, I, I played really well in that tournament. And there was a guy there. Um, I can't remember his. I think it was something Palmer. You might know him, the older guy. who Watched me, and Roger was pushing like, "Come and watch this this kid. He's young, but I think he, you know, he's got it. I think he can play pro." And he watched me play. I had no idea he was there. Roger never told me. And after the game, he's like, "Look, my agent. There's a team in Germany that is very interested in you." I said, okay. He's like, you're going to fly out like next week. I said, cool. And then I went out there and um, I, this is when I really got hit with, you have no idea about basketball outside of the UK. You have no clue. So I get there and there's three other guards, clearly point guards. They're going to pick one. I'm so naive. I just, 18, 19, just kind of rock up, play. I'm playing pretty good, you know. Um, and then we go out to like, we had three practices, in two days and then the second day we go out uh and we're at a restaurant like the the team is sponsored by some restaurant right i'm just sitting there head coach and owner and i'm at the end of the table and they they sit me here and i don't know i'm just eating food and then the, the owner you know very good english the coach really bad english so they're like translating the owner's like look the, the coach likes you better than those two and they're down at the end of the table i was like okay um but you need to sign today um, because those two are ready to sign. So if you sign, you know, you're, you're the guy we're taking. And it was like the second division in Germany, I think. I was like, okay. Um, and then they said, this, we're going to pay you like, I think it was 1,500 euros a month. You're going to have a house with one of the teammates, um, and then you, you have a food allowance. And I was like, okay. And they, and they just put the contract down. And I'm like, can I call someone? They're like, who do you want to call? I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't have, they're like, you have an agent? I'm like, no. So I'm like trying to get hold of Roger. And I'm like trying to call Roger Zena. Like, you know, um, I don't know what this is. Is it the right contract? Can someone look over it? He's not picking up his phone. So I, I try and call, uh, and I call my mum. And I'm like, look, like, and she's like going to Germany. Like, what happens? And they're like, oh, you're going to stay if you sign. We have practice tomorrow. I was so naive. I thought I'm going to a tryout. 
they might like me, I'll come home and I'll figure it out. And that's how it works. Like you take the stuff with you and you sign and you stay, you don't go back. And I'm like, I'm, no, I was like, I'm not ready to do that at all. I was like, no, no. And then they're like, okay, don't worry about it. And they literally moved me off the table. They're like, you can move down. And they bring the other guy down and speak to him. I was like, oh, did I just make the worst decision of my life? And then I flew back the next day and that was kind of me done with Europe. I kind of just fell in the trap of playing, you know, in Division One, you know, London United, Worthing, Reading, I kind of just stayed in that. And I always wanted to get back, but it just never worked. It just never really worked for me. I think I was just not really ready mindset to kind of do it. And um, yeah, I just stayed in England and that was kind of my career. I just kind of had, you know, everyone says you played basketball in the UK for your whole life. I, I did. I had opportunities to go America and Europe, but I just didn't take them. I just, it just didn't work for me. So I ended up being like just a UK player and just stayed. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you reached your potential? No, no way. I remember Namo, Namo Shiri said to me when I was like, I think I just finished playing at Reading. I had all kinds of craziness at Reading and Worthing and transferring and moving around. And um, he caught me in the summer and he's like, what, what's going on with you, man? Like you're moving around, you're here and you're, you're taking money here, moving to this team. Like what's going on? And I was like, I don't know, man. I said, you know, like I'm just, I'm just trying to enjoy it. I just want to play. And he's like, have you ever thought about, why don't you just play to see how good you can be? And I never, ever, that never crossed my mind. I wish I'd have heard that advice when I was like 18 because if you play to see how good you can be, it kind of takes everything else out. And I never, I, I could have put way more hours in. You know, I think when I was younger, I put in more hours when I was like 17. I was playing every day, working out, weightlifting because I knew I had to get stronger. And then when I got to a bit older, I, I think I took, you know, I put less in and I, I, I know I reached my potential. I know I could have been a lot better. Something I do regret is something now when I coach, I put a heavy, a heavy push on younger kids. Like I always say it to them, like you should be playing to see how good you can be. Like really that should be in the back of your mind. Like, how good can I be at this? If you put, if you leave everything out and you leave the game and say, yeah, you know, that's as, that's as good as I could be. I don't think I even reached close to that. I really don't. And that's it's something that, you know, I love Norma and I just, man, I, was like, I wish someone had told me that when I was younger, I think I probably would have probably been better or played at a higher level. Yeah, and you, you spent, obviously, the majority of your, your career in Division One. Like, when we're talking about sort of uh, what you can earn and kind of your career, your 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 um, your life as a basketball professional, essentially, like, what was the setup? Were you able to play basketball full-time from the money you were getting paid? Were you doing other things? Like, how did it work? Yeah, so my first, you know, the first time I ever received money was when I went to Worthing. So that's why I left London United. And that was a tough decision because London United was Jack, you know, Ealing, all my guys there. That was a real tough decision to make. But we played Worthing in like a trophy game and I just played really well. And then um, Steve Gale was on the team, Marvin Addy at the time. And they, they was chicken. Gary Smith was a coach. He's like, who? Yeah, this guy's good. You know, who's this guy? Is he American? Who is he? And I'm like, no, he's, the, he's British. So, you know, um, Gary Smith was heavily recruiting me. He was like, do you want to come play at Worthing? So in the summer, I went down there. And then it, it went back to that Germany thing where I sat with the owners again. I was like, man, here we go. It, it was definitely not the same money. But I wasn't so naive then. And they were like, look, like this is what we can offer you. So it was money every month, uh, every week after a game. Uh, we would share the team car. I could live in a house because I was from London. But the money was not great. And um, I'll be candid. It was £150 a week. 150 pound a week, and I was the second highest paid on the team. 
So that tells you, you know, I was getting more than Steve Gow. I know that he, I hope he's watching this. Cause he was like, you ain't making more money. I had to lie about it. Cause he's so angry about money and all this stuff. So I was 150 pound a week. Uh, the car we shared is, but I never really drove it cause the Americans did. Um, we lived in a player house and then Janet Mills was running coaching all over the place. And I made way more money out of coaching. I was in schools like, you know, 40 pounds, 30, I think it was 30 pound an hour at that time. Uh, and I was in two schools a day. So I was making okay money as a 20 year old, 21 year old, wherever I was, but there's no way I was living off just, you know, that money, no way, you know? So I had to coach same set when I went to Reading, had to coach as well. Um, Leicester Riders was the only time outside of Hoops for Health, which is not a lot, was the only time that I just got paid and I didn't actually have to do anything else, you know. Um, so Leicester was just, I'm going to play basketball, uh, very minimal coaching. I lived in a hotel there, food, they were able to supply food at the hotel. Um, so yeah, big jump from Worthing and Reading to Leicester in pay and, and, and kind of me just full time basketball player. It was the only real time. I was a full-time basketball player. It was my one year in the BBL. So before we before we jump forward, I want it just from my own personal knowledge. There was there's two things, two 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 memories I have of you playing. Um, okay. Trash so the, fir- the first one, and and this, funny enough, is not on. It wasn't in your list, so I'm I'm interested to know the situation. But you played for Kingston University uh, for a period of time. Uh, yeah, I did. Damn, I didn't put that on there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in 2000, it would have been 2004. I first joined Brunel, um, and we we actually played you guys, and there was all this talk about Stephen will lead, Stephen will lead. Um, and yeah, I was, I was actually injured, so I was sitting on the bench, so I watched the whole game. But basically, you just, I mean, it was just absolute spanking. I think you dominated that. It was like, I think we were like, it was like Bucks one A. I think it was the second one down from the Prem South, possibly. Um, yeah. yeah. But the other thing that everyone was always saying was that like you two weren't legit students at the university and it was like you'd been enrolled in some sort of Mickey Mouse course <laughs> so that you could play basketball when Jack was just hooking you up. Do you know what I mean? So I, I would love to hear the story there. So, yeah, Jack, um, Jack's, you know, I've got to love Jack. So he was not the coach at Kingston University until we came. So he goes to Kingston University and goes, I have these two star England international players. And we just finished our under 20 uh, team in Greece. He had pictures and footage, and he's like, I have these two guys, uh, and I want to bring them here, but you, I'm the coach, and these two, you, they don't pay for university. I know he did that. So he comes back to us and says, I got the job at Kingston University. I want you guys to come. I'm like, okay. Um, and I was like, uh, we were thinking about studying. You know, I, I think I was like, yeah, you know, and he's like, it's free. I was like, okay. So what do we need to do? He's like, sports science. So he had cut a deal with the guy who was running the whole like sports science department that we would get scholarships and they weren't giving anyone scholarships then. They weren't giving sports scholarships at the university. Um, like we were like very new to this talented athlete scheme type of thing. We were, so he was pulling money from like TAS and, you know, he was very good at just doing these deals. Um, so we were doing uh, sports science. We both were there. We were enrolled. Did we go to everything? No way. There's no way we did because we were practicing so much. We practiced Kingston University. We practiced, you know, um, the men's team. I mean, we were doing so much stuff. Um, but we both got a degree at the end. Did we do every class? No, we did not. Definitely not. But we both graduated. And our sports science guy um, and we had a mentor, they helped us kind of get through. So, yeah, we got a lot of complaints. I remember we played a team 
in the final and beat him by 75 points. Um, and he complained about us. And that's when it started. Um, he looked into us, I think. And it was like, but we had student IDs and we were, we were enrolled there. But yeah, it's partly true. So yeah. The, the other one, um, it was a random inter-county tournament uh, that you played, I think you played, I feel like you played for, it was in Sussex. I don't know if you played for Sussex, but it was you and Steve Gale dominated, yes. like absolutely yeah, we, dominated. So, what was that? So I normally play for Surrey, being from Southwest London, there was, you know, the, those counter things and the, the county. And then when I moved to Worthing, my residency was in Worthing. So I was able to play for Sussex because I was living in a playhouse at Worthing and so was Steve. He's from Manchester. Okay. So Chris May was the coach who's our assistant with, and Chicken was involved with it. And he said, you guys can play. It's where you, where you live or where you play. And you, you kind of both. I'm like, and we just want to play, you know, when you're there. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. So um, me and Steve went down there and we didn't know that there was going to be so many people there. It was like a packed out gym. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And that gave me a bit of motivation. And the level weren't great. You know, we were just, Division One was really good then. You know, we we were top of the league, but there was Reading and Teesside and, I mean, London United were really good then. Manchester, I mean, the league was really good then. So we went there and it was just so easy for us. We were just like, I was like, this is, these guys aren't really that great. So I remember that tournament when we just kind of just, it was fun. It was just a lot of jokes for us. Um, there was a lot of trash talking. Played, there was a lot of trash talking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Steve does more than me. Steve goes something else. So, um but yeah, that's why we played that tournament. It was a random one. And it was only a couple of days before we got asked to play. It wasn't like we knew about it. I, I didn't know most of the guys on the team. I remember looking like, I don't know these guys. So yeah, but that was, I forgot about that one. It was kind of a random one, but yeah. Yeah, mad. So fast forward, um, after your season with, with the Riders, that was the, your, your sort of first retirement and sort of thinking about kind of what... what <laughs> retirement. Yeah. Uh, coming like MJ. Um, yeah. you were, what, were your, what was your thought process around sort of thinking what's, what's the next step, what you're going to end up going into? Yeah, I mean, so Leicester Riders was a crazy experience moving there because um, I got cut from Reading's first time I ever got cut. Um, so, and I only found out last 2018 from Dave Tipness why I got cut because they told me I wasn't good enough. I'm like, me being me, I'm like, I'm Reading Rockets, I'm not good enough. I said, geez. Okay, so me and American got cut, and the way they did it was just awful. They brought us into a room before practice. The practice is going on. And they're like, can you guys come into this room on the side of practice? I'm like, all right. So we go in there. And the American was not playing well. He was out of shape. You know, and they'd been through like three or four Americans already. He was just not good. And I was like, so, so, I, I can see why he's here. I said, me? I, I don't know. And I was playing really well. I was like top assist in the league. You know, I, I felt like I was playing really well. So I go into the office and they're like, it's not working out. And me being me, because I am quite naive sometimes, I'm looking at him like, yeah, it ain't working out. You're not very good. So I kind of look at him, I'm like, but then, you know, Gary Johnson owner kind of looks at me as well. So I was like, oh, I didn't know straight away, you're cutting us both. And they're like, yeah, it's not working out. You know, it's, you, you guys just aren't right for the team. And they kind of went on to the American, like he's out of shape. And then they went to me and kind of said, like, you're not a team guy. You're, you're, um, you're not really what we're looking for. You're quite negative. And I was like, All right, I've never been told that. As a player, I've been like always... Like as a point guard, the captain, I've always kind of been someone that's a glue guy. So I was like, mm, all right. So that's interesting. And then Dave Titmus was like, yeah, you just, Steve, you're not, been, you're not been playing very well either. And I was like, oh, I said, oh, it hurts. And I was like, wow. I said, okay, cool. 
Um, so they're like, we're gonna, you're going to leave. So you, you need to get your stuff and go. And we live in a playhouse. So I was like, I said, what is going on? I got cut in England. I said, Jesus, this is crazy. So um, we come out of the door and all the players are just there, like shooting around and looking at us. And I'm walking off. And then um, Gary Johnson, you know, the owner was like, you need to leave your jacket because it was like an Atlantis, the, the Red and Rockets jacket. I had my jacket on. And I was like, yeah, it's crazy. So I just took it off. I remember I just dropped it on the floor. I was like, I'm out. Just left. I didn't even look back. And it said bye. To, I was ready to say bye to my teammates and be really kind of professional about it. And be like, guys, look, nope. I just, I remember getting um, out of the parking lot. I drove home. The American, I was like, come on, drove home. I packed my stuff. I went back to London like that night. I was like, I don't care about whatever. Um, and as I'm driving back, um, uh, I called Martin Ford because Martin Ford had been recruiting me because um, he was the Bucks coach. And I called him. I said, "Look, I took a cut from Reading. He's just dying down the phone. If you don't mind, Ford, he just does. He just cracked. He's like, what? He said, come on. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm driving back to London. They cut me. I said, look, I know you guys were recruiting me early, and I don't know what's going on. And he's like, well, we might just cut our American point guard. I was like, okay. He said, this could work. He said, but I need to get you. I need to, you need to come down and play. Like, you know, like Russell Livingston, the owner, and these guys. They don't really know you. You're just a, an NBL Division One guy." You know, Rod Wellington's on the team. He can vouch for you. Um, Darren Mills, Barry Lamble, they know you. So he, I said, all right, um, when can you come? I was like, now. So I had my stuff in my car. I took my, I remember my Golf GTI at the time. I drove it right down to Leicester. Um, they put me in a hotel that night. I woke up and I was there and I just practiced. I kept practicing. And then I knew I had to go with this point guard. I was like, I'm going to have to just kill him. So just went back in and just started to play really, really well. And then I remember first game at Plymouth, they started him. He didn't play well. I came in, played the whole game, and they cut him the next day. And they didn't handle that very well. Um, so I stayed at Leicester. And it was not a great situation. We're playing in some crappy gym with slippery floor. Where they play at that, have you been to the university? I forgot what it's called, like really low ceiling. And I was just like, oh, man, like Reading was better than this. The court was better. They had like an SNC coach. I was like, man, like I'm getting paid more. I said, this setup is terrible. And then um, I remember Russell Livingston said to me, and he was real, like, and he's like, this ain't great at the moment, but trust me, this team, we got plans. And I was like, me, <laughs> okay. He's like, no, we're gonna build an arena. We're gonna have big sponsors. We're gonna be really good. Um, and he said, and we want to get British guys, like we really do. And he was talking about younger guys coming up. He said, I think. You, you, you could be here two, three years. Like you really could. And then the younger guys will come in and you'll probably move on. And he was being real. And I just didn't believe it. I was like, nah, sorry, Russell. I said, I don't believe it. Um, I really don't. I said, I don't believe it. That season was just like, uh, for me, I played terrible. I got really sick during the year. Broke up with my girlfriend at the time who we were together a long time. I was like, I'm done. I'm done from basketball. So I kind of left and went back to London and set up a basketball coaching business. Um, and that made me more money than I've made in three years playing. Like I made crazy money out of it going into these these schools and coaching and doing it myself, basically what Janet Mills was doing. Um, and then I look back at what Leicester Riders did and I was like, wow, you know what? That's something that I'll always be like, I was completely wrong. Like Russell Livingston completely changed Leicester Riders to what they were and I could have been a part of it. He, he asked me to be there for three years, to sign a three-year deal. I said, I don't want to do it. Um, I don't regret it. I just think I was really kind of surprised at what they did. But yeah, I mean, I set up my coaching business and in two years, I made really good money. Like it was something that I was really pleased I did. I was able to 
buy a house in a flat in Canary Wharf, kind of move out. And then, you know, that was when I was in the real world of basketball's part-time. I play on the weekends. Um, don't need to make any money out of it. I've got enough money to kind of do my own thing. So, yeah, that's kind of how I stopped playing the first time. So, yeah. Excuse me. It was, it was around this time that um, you were starting being involved with, with Den Camp as well, right? Yeah. So, Den Camp, I got involved by Andrew Norton. So, I've been on every single Den Camp. There's only been outside of his family, uh, me, Andrew Norton, and Eva Maru, the only three people, oh, and Ronnie Baker, are the only people that have been on every single Den Camp. So I got asked to coach Andrew Norton, you know, rough and ready days. She was a big fan of mine. She was helping put on the, the coaching staff. So she called me in the summer, like, look, I was doing a camp in Seven Oaks. Do you want to be a coach? You're, you're coach the little kids in the BBL. I was like 21, whatever it was, 22, it was 2005, I was 22. I was like, yeah, sure. So that was when me and Lowell reconnected. Like everyone thinks me and him are like childhood friends. No, like me and Lowell met, played together in France. We stayed in touch for a little bit. After that, I had no contact with him. Never spoke to him since. And when it came to the camp, he was like, oh, man, like, how are you being? So we weren't like, everyone thinks like, me and him have like grown. We've known each other since he was 14, I was 16. But we haven't been friends and for that long. So that's when I got back involved. Andrew Norton asked me to coach. So I did two years of coaching on the, the 20, 2005 and 2006 camp in Seven Oaks. And then, you know, the camp got moved. And, and when it got moved out of Seven Oaks, um, it went to Reading. And I was playing at Reading in 2007. So Daniel Says, who was running the camp, he messaged me and said, you're playing at Reading, right? I was like, yeah, I am. He said, well, are you able to kind of like help with the venue? Like go down, pick up packages, look at stuff for us. And I was like, of course, it's 20 minutes down the street from where I was. So it was at Bradfield College, and I went down there, and I just became the liaison guy. I was there every day. It was just too much. I was just like, my God. I was always at Bradfield College, helping set things up, taking packages. So that's how I kind of got more involved outside of coaching because I was based in Reading. And then that camp was run so badly. It was painful. And it, it hurt me because I put so much work in. I was helping so much. I got, I got to look at some organization of a camp rather than just a coach because as a coach, you turn up get scheduled you do it and you kind of leave and it's like you know three four days but i've been playing this all year and i was like i've been doing all this work and then daniel says at the time was just so unorganized i was like this is just so i remember after the camp um you know we had a horror story at that camp where one guy was stealing stuff from people's rooms and getting on train back to london and dropping it off and coming back and the reason why is he enrolled at camp and he paid to be at camp but the the, the system was so bad that there was no register done every day throughout the day, like a roll call, right? So this guy is like, everyone's coming like, I lost my shoes. I lost my, you know, my video game thing. I lost my jewelry. And everyone's like, yo, you're stealing stuff. And then one of the referees, Dave Parfit, is a police officer. He's like, I'm going to find out. And he did his police work. He ended up finding out who did it. And this guy was going back and forth. So we ended up getting everything back. He had to arrest him and take him back to London. And, um, I was like, yo, Lord, you're an NBA player. It's crazy. You don't, you want people coming to your camp and getting stuff stolen. So for me, I, I went to him and I knew his sister really well, Rick, and his brother, Joe. And I said, you, you got to do better. I'm sorry. Like, you're the only camp. You've got 300 plus kids coming in. No one else is really doing camps. And I just said, I think you need to reevaluate how you organize this. I was not pitching for my, my job. I was making good money with my coaching business. Um, sorry, I was making decent money at Reading and coaching there. I didn't want a job. I just wanted to just play basketball at Reading and kind of just, you know, do that thing. And then I remember the world's agent at the time, Justin Oakshinson, was like, I like you, Steve. Why don't you do it? 
And I was like, nah, no, 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 no. I said, I'm not, I'm not doing it. We're re and then anyone knows a Josh, he, when he says something, he kind of, he's, he's like, we're reevaluating this. Just wait. So I think it was about a week later, Lawan messaged me and said, look, just come to the London house. Um, let's talk about this. So we sat around a table with Daniel Seisu, me, Arek, his agent, and said, all right, what, what didn't you like about the camp? Like, what do you think we could do? And I'm like an organized person, organized with on the court. I'm kind of, you know, it's just how I am. So I explained some things that I didn't like. And then uh, Daniel was looked at me and was like, I think you should run the camp. I was like, no, no, no. So we do it together. He's like, all right, well, the way we do it together. Um, and then so I helped on the organization side. And then GB were running a camp in 2008. And then they're like, we want to run it alongside Luol's camp. So they guarantee Luol was going to be at every practice. So then my job became like the liaison with Luol and GB of how do we get you to be at your trainings and how do we get you to do at weights. And, and that was my job in 28. And so it was the first time I, I would say I had a job, you know, working with Luol was being his player liaison with GB. And then after that, the world's like, oh my God, this guy's really good. Like, not only are we cool, we're getting on really well, we're building a friendship. Um, you're actually really organized and you actually know what you're talking about with basketball. And, you know, I like you. So then that's when 2009 came. He was like, you're running camp with my sister and moved to Loughborough. And that's when I got a job, um, you know, fast track 2009, 2010. I was, you know, we set up his foundation in the UK and I was full time. I was a full time kind of um, working as, you know, director of bus operations and then I became the CEO of LDF UK and I did that for seven years and that was kind of how I got involved so I actually really started with Andrea Norton if you think about it she was the one that put me on a camp you know and that's why when I do camp Andrea's there all the time you know I've always paid back and I'm someone loyal so I'm like Andrea's got to be at every camp um so I always make sure that she's involved and I run dates by her really early um because you know I, I'm like that I'm really appreciate that when I look back at how am I working with the wall everyone thinks you're a childhood friend. I'm like, well, no, not really. We didn't really know each other that well. It was actually Andrea put me on Den Camp back in 2005. So, so yeah. So you, your role as CEO of the, the foundation, outside of, of course, organizing the camp, what, what other sort of responsibilities did you have on, a, on an annual basis? Yeah, I mean, we, there was no setup. It was, you know, when we first started, it was me and his sister, Rick. So it was just us kind of running camp and then deciding, like, what are we going to do with basketball? So we had to get a board of trustees, at, you know, I mean, you know, you have a registered charity, you have to run, you know, you have to put in your accounts. We had, we had to make sure governance was done right first. Luckily, my, my dad's an accountant. So straight away, I was like, you're going to be the accountant. He's like, haven't done charity stuff, but I'll learn it. And then we got a chairman in who was um, Anthony Kendall, who was the chairman of London Youth Games. And with him, it was like, all right, we need to start bringing in a board. We need to start making sure that we do this properly. So that was really what we did for the first six months of because of, we set up in september 2009 so the camp had just finished at love brand it was like all right now we've got a lot of money coming in because we're getting grants through you know like um, belfort bt and south bank put some money in for, for the camp before that we looked at um sports match was heavy then so we're like we're getting money in now and the world's putting money in and it's not just going to come in and out like it was before because that's how it was run so a lot of governance started with it and then Bricks and Topcats was heavily on the world's mind. It's like, I want to do stuff for Bricks and Topcats. So one of the first things we were doing was how do we put money into Bricks and Topcats, but not just them asking the world send some money in. So we set up like a trust through the foundation where they were basically one of our major pro projects that LDF would sponsor. And then we were able to kind of not control, but we were able to, when you need money, we'll give it to you and we'll better pay for it on what stuff you need rather than, 
here's a lump sum of money, use it how you want, because sometimes that gets a bit dangerous every year. So, and then that really became apparent when I moved over to Brixton. That was a big role for me where I was like, I need you to kind of slowly get into Brixton Top Cats and help with what you've done with LDF UK, set it up properly. So it was a lot of governance stuff. You know, and we ran Deng Minis and Fractured Champions, some smaller projects. But the two main projects of LDF UK to start with was definitely, you know, the Deng Camp. And then it was it was Bricks and Top Catch, making sure that we kind of had some some goals that we would help them with. Um, but it was run properly and money was kind of positioned properly. So, yeah. Talk about the, pro- the progression of, of Den Camp over the years. You know, in it was 2014, I think, that you made the switch to, to go to an elite camp. Um yeah. and do the rankings and all that stuff like i guess what's the origin of that how why did you decide to make the switch from from what it was to to going sort of full elite top 50 format um yeah and how, how did that decision come to be so you know normo shiri wanted to do that top 50 camp and i was i was invited to it so that was you know um in my mind of i don't invite to a top 50 camp it never happened but i was very excited for that camp i remember being a player like not only I've been invited to something because back then it was rough and ready to get invited to, but program, you know, Roger Zanna's nights where you just kind of scrimmaged. So you could kind of just go. There wasn't really this exclusivity to much in British basketball, but rough and ready was that. It was like, you got your Woody Wonka golden ticket. You're invited to it. So when Narmo was talking about this, I was like, okay, you know, like, yeah, midnight madness, top 50. I was like, this is, I'm excited for it. It never happened. And a lot of us were really upset. It didn't happen. So that was in my mind as a player. And I always do this with Denkamp. I put on my, my player hat a lot. I'm lucky that I grew up in England. I was able to play for the national team. I, I know what it's like to be a British kid growing up um, of what you have and what you don't have. So that was in the back of my mind a lot. And then when, you know, the, the, the switch came because Coach Montagna, you know, Luol's Blair uh, high school coach, he came to the camp in 2014. He always tried to get to camp, but his schedule never worked. And then finally... He got a summer off with his team. So he's like, I can make 2014 camp. I'm like, perfect. We're going to move it to Crystal Palace. We're going to do this camp. So he comes in. He's got all these high expectations for how good the British kids are. A day in, and I don't really know Coach Montagna that well, but, I mean, you've met him at camp. He says what's on his mind. He's not going to hold back. And that's what I love about him because you need people like that. So he comes in, and he's like, okay, he's just doing some stuff. And then he, the second day, he's like, okay, so... I don't know what to do with these kids because the stuff I'm doing, like the drills, I do with like middle school kids and they're still struggling with that. So he's like, I'm going to need to really dumb this down. We've got some really good kids here and some really bad kids. He said, it's really difficult. You've split them by age. You split them by this. He said, it's not for me. It's just not really worth it. And I was like, damn, it kind of hurts. I was like, I've been doing really good with this camp. I took it over and it was not run very well. And I, to me, I was like, I thought I'm doing a great job, but you know, he's not there to offend people. He's just being honest. And I was like, okay. And I'm, you know, reflecting on it. I was like, okay. So um, he's like, well, you know, let's just finish the camp. It's cool. Like just, you know, yeah. let's just talk about it afterwards. So, um, you know, he's in, he's in London. So where do we take him? We've got to take him to Nando's. Come on, like coach, you got to go to Nando's. So after the camp, me, him and a while, was like, all right, you got to try this Nando's. He's like, all right, cool. So all this hype around Nando's, he's eating it, he's loving it. And then, um, as he's eat, we're, we're just sitting in Brixton Nando's. He's like, look, why don't you guys do a top 100 camp? I'm throwing it out there. And I look at the wall and he's just shaking his head. He's like, no. And I said, and then top 50 rings in my mind, right? Because I've been thinking about when I was a player. 
So I say, okay. Um, he said, yeah, they do him in the US. Laurel, you were number two of the Nike top 100 behind LeBron. You know what it is. And Laurel's just eating his chicken, shaking his head like, no, no, no. And I'm like, why not? He's like, come on. There's not 100 kids in the UK. There's not. There's not, not good enough kids. You know, he's right, right? You know, we're looking back at 2014. I was like, top 50. I just said it straight away. I wasn't even speaking. I was like, top 50. Coach Montana looks at me. Looks at, he said, top 50. So I was like, top 50, top 50. I was like, dang, top 50. Like, dang, top 50. It's like a, like a light bulb moment. We kind of look at each other and was like, and that was it. We didn't even like talk about it afterwards. We didn't say we're going to bring these kids in, we're going to do it. That's how Lawal operates. Like, I've known that from working with him. If he likes something, don't wait for him to say no two weeks later because he will. He'll be like, I liked it then, I don't like it now. So then when I started looking at this, you know, how, how do you run these camps? It was all about ranking. It was like ranking systems. You've got to rank, you've got to rank. And I was like, oh, my God, I need help with that. So my first call was to all these British coaches around. One, do you think it's a good idea, like ranking kids? Do you think we're going to get some heat? And now I look back at it like I don't think like that anymore. I just do what I want to do. And I know you're the same. Like, I think we do that too much in British basketball. We try and please everybody. And do you think this is – so that was my first thing. Like, And I was trying to protect the wall first. Like, you know, do you think it's going to be bad for him? And then I was asking, like, how do we pick the kids? So I'm asking, like, you know, I'll be open. Jesse Cezanne was one of the first guys I called around. It, like, you think this is something that will work? How do we pick the kids? And I'm starting talking to all these coaches, like, just hitting them up. Like, how many kids do you think you, you're having in the top 50? And it became apparent. And you know it with your selection at, at your um, all-star game. Everyone is top 50 kid. Oh, and I have what, five of them, right? So it became really difficult picking. And it became a project in itself outside of the camp. So you've got the camp of organizing, how do you run a camp, getting the staff in. And then on the side of it, which is taking up more time, is selecting the players. And I made a big mistake in the first year is I felt like I didn't need many people to help me. I thought like, let me condense it and just go off some people that I trust. Um, and then I'll just go with some some players. And I, you know, we were very heavy London, I think, which probably we got hit on a lot. Too many guys from London on the camp. Uh, but we got the best, best kids. We definitely got that right. But there was a huge drop off in the first year. It was like, oh my God, like we've got like 20 kids here are really good. So that's why when we ranked the camp, we didn't put out 50 players. The first one, that was the goal. We get there, here's 50. And we don't, and I was saying to the world, can we put the 51 out? Yeah. Who cares? He's 50. You know, he's like, we got to do it. We got to stop being so nice. And it was too difficult because drop from 20 down, it's like, you're, you're all 50. You're not even close to 21, 20. It was just so difficult. So it was crazy. During that camp, we, you know, speaking with, you know, Luol, Montagna, Ronnie Baker. Uh, I think Jesse was definitely in those conversations around, maybe we just do a top 20 that we put up on the board and they become an all-star game in the end day. We didn't have that plan. That, that innately happened because the players weren't good enough. There was just such a drop-off. You know, we had Jules, Cavell, um, Dwayne, I mean, God, the, the camp was stacked. I mean, like Dwayne Areja, who was one of the best juniors then, barely made top 20. That's how good the camp was. He had a bad camp. Don't get me wrong, he should have been higher. But the, I mean, you know, Calvin's and Luke Muscar, I mean, the camp was, you know, we look back at talent wise, this is the best camp we've had, the first one, but it was just such a big drop off. So we did that during the camp and it stuck because we made a big deal on the last day. We brought people in free to come watch it, which again is something that the freebie stuff is, again, I, I take a big hit on it, stop doing it because it does devalue what we're trying to do in British basketball. So we did that and that's that's kind of like how we ended the camp. It was like, we're going to do an all-star game and give out awards? Cool. And that stuck. That's something that we haven't changed. We've changed a lot throughout the years. 
Um, but I'm not going to lie. 2014 was a complete winger year on camp. We had a schedule. I don't think they were printed on the walls. I don't think we had a big manual like we have now. I think it was very much like it's a trial and error year. And I remember I now speak to like Cavell, <laughs> Jules, and when they come back, you know, they come back and, and they always talk about, now you picked some terrible guys that year. And I'm like, you know, Josh Steele as well. He was, he was one that he's a very, you know, great guy. And he's just, and he's, you know, a really nice guy. And he'd, he'd be like, yeah, you, you pick some guys. Like, what are you picking? And I'm like, yeah, I'm taking a hit. It was me, you know. And then um, we changed how we started picking. We, we started having a selection panel and took six, seven, it takes six, seven months now. And I mean, you know, for the All-Star Classics, it's tough. It's really tough to pick. You've got to value people's decisions. You've got to look at where they play. The EABL, AOBL, the EABL and ABL is really tough because the levels are so different. So that becomes a factor into who you pick. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why we moved to it. It's the best decision we made for Den Camp. Um, Dan Clark brilliantly started his camp when we moved. So all those kids that didn't make it and wanted a camp, we just pushed, pushed, pushed to Dan Clark's camp. So his first year, he got a really good turnout. Um, that was great. I was working with Duncan on it. And I think that really helped our kids and it helped soften Den Camp. Oh, you're excluding people? Because we got a lot of, a lot of people not happy about it. It's like, there's a camp in London. Good, Dan Clark, go, go, go. So that helped us. I think that's definitely softened the, the hit for people that look forward to the camp in the summer. But overall, it's the best decision we made. We don't regret it. We think it's um, something we, we probably would have done earlier if we knew it was going to be successful. So, yeah. Just to pick up on, on something you said there, just talking about the depth of talent in the UK, you know, like, yeah. and I, I find, you know, I'm doing the selection for the classic there, there's a there's a group of guys. You know, we select sort of what twenty four. So there's there's a group that is clear cut, a hundred percent locks, no questions asked. Yeah. And they're way higher than everyone else. And then after you got, let's say that that's, there's probably eight, nine, ten of those, right? And then yep. after that, you, there's you could make a very strong case for a lot of guys. You know, and and yep. actually separating them is super difficult. Obviously now you know Den Camp's been running. This would have been the sixth year. Uh, yeah, if you'd run it this year. Um, yep. so, f- so five years worth of, of kind of data and, and sort of looking at what would you say about the kind of depth of talent and when you're talking about the level of, 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 of talent in the UK and the spread across positions yep. and stuff like that, like how does it look? I, I, people ask me this and I do this. This is what I do. I start, this is how we started and now talent's starting to go like this. You still have your top guys like you said. You still have them. They're still clearly better and they're locks. Um, but it's the guys that, that, that were at the bottom is starting to creep up. Definitely the academy leagues, because when we started this, you know, um, the, the academy leagues didn't exist. I don't know. When, when was the ABL? When did that, when did that so start? That, that, it would have been the same season. So 2013-14 was the first season of the ABL as we know it. Yeah, yeah so that just started, right? So, you know, some of the guys that we picked weren't in those academy setups. They were just in National League. That's helped us a lot because you can gauge level now. Before, it's like well, you're playing under-18 prem, you're playing under-18, whatever it is. You might be playing men's. You might. It's just like so sporadic to pick. Now, we look heavily at the EABL. I get a lot of uh, comments around the ABL. A lot of, it's better than it is. It's not. I don't care. I watch it. It's not better than it is. And that's frustrating for people um, who don't get selected because they're like, well, I'm, I'm dropping 20 points in ABL. I'm like, okay. Yeah, but I've watched games. I watch so much games, um, and the people I speak to, um, you know, who are on the selection panel, we factor in that the ABL is a lot 
worse than the EABL. There are some better players in the EABL than the EABL. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying everyone in the EABL is better than everyone in ABL. No, it's, we've had ABL guys come to the camp and make top five. So there's no, there's not that. I'm not, I'm not anti-ABL. What I'm saying is it's very hard to gauge that player. When you look at them and go, okay, well, these are your stats and here's your highlights. I'm like, well, okay, but look who you're playing against. It's so difficult for us to pick out ABL guys. So I think we've done a better job of allowing more in. I think we were very against it at the start. Me personally, I say we, but me. Um, I have a better gauge on ABL. I speak to more coaches. Um, I think ABLs might be getting a bit better. But, you know, for me, EABL is the standard that we do look at. And then the great thing about EABL is a lot of those guys will play in Division One. So those guys we can definitely start grouping as well. You know, like a Chris Feeney, for example, is a really good example of, you know, and this crazy. Some people are like, he shouldn't have made it, which is nuts to me, right? He's not a lock when we did it because the second year he made it, it definitely was. But when I when we looked at him and he's playing EABL, because Barkin don't play many guys at EABL. You know, they play more Division One. He goes Division One, and it's like I can I don't need to look at his stats. I watch a game and I'm like, this guy can play at that level. It's no problem for him. Um, but if we just gauged it on his EABL and he just didn't play much, it's really difficult. So. You know, we take a lot of factors into it. Stats are important, but they're not everything. They're really not. Um, but it's tough. I mean, you know it. You're going to upset people. Not everyone can make it. And we, we've got 50. You've got like 24. So you have a harder job. But um, it does get so difficult at the bottom end where it's like, man, like this guy and this guy, you know, and you want to get away from where well, we've got seven Manchester guys and only four Ipswich guys. Do we put in one Ipswich guy? You want to take that out because sometimes it's, um, you know, you don't want to just say, well, we're heavily pushing towards clubs rather than players. But sometimes that has a factor. Sometimes, you know, you know, if you've got seven, let's just use Manchester Loretta's, seven of those guys, but you know, they're fifth in their league. It's like, well, are we going on record as well? I mean, there's so many intangibles that go in. But um, it, it's tough. But I do every, one thing that nobody knows, which I, I'll tell you on here, is that I pick one player every year myself. Every year. And um, that's something that I do because... I look, and that's not the top guys, it's the, the lower part is, I take it on myself because it's so hard for me to say to these coaches, pick, pick these guys. They're like, well, I'm, I'm breaking the heart of a kid that I know the top guys. I don't really watch them. I don't really look at them. So I, you know, literally over six months, I watch all those bottom guys. It's all I do. I just watch, 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 look at it. And I'm like, I'm going to pick one. I'm guaranteed. And it's always the last pick all at the end where we're looking at it like, sorry guys. And they're like, I, I can't choose. I'm like, I get it every year. So it's something that, um, I make sure that I do because I don't, I don't want to always put it on, you know, I probably start picking more, but I always do one at the moment, but it's tough. But to answer your question, I think the, you still have the top guys. I think it's, it's, it's just coming closer now. I think when we rank at camp, it's becoming harder, which is a good thing. I think it's rankings throughout the year change more than they have. So, you know, I think it's the talent is getting closer, but you're never going to get away from those top guys. They're always going to be there and they're going to be better, you know. So what advice would you give to a kid who's probably a little bit salty that feels that they're overlooked, doesn't get selected to Den Camp top 50 every year, doesn't get looked at by who's Pixel Star Classic? Like, uh, yeah. you know, if, if, if a kid was to ask, what do I need to do? How do I kind of get on your radar? Like, what advice would you give to them? Well, we changed the process where you can actually nominate yourself, which we didn't do before, which I know is crazy when you think about it because we get over 400 a year. 
um, which is probably like, oh my God, but I do go through them. I do. Why would I, you know, my part of my job is, you know, running the camp, but I'm not going to ask a selection panel to go through all these, these kids. So if you, if you nominate yourself, I'm going to see it. So I'm going to look at it and I'm going to put it somewhere, whether it goes just to me or it goes to the selection panel, you're going to be on the radar of someone that's making the decision. So some players have, have been salty and not making it. And then my response is, did you nominate yourself? No. I'm like, well, that's something that's for free and you can do it. And we do take guys that have nominated themselves that have not, we, they were not on our, our sheet. It's happened. It's like, oh my God. And we put it in like, oh, this kid, who's this kid? Oh no, I cope. And we look at them and like, wow, I didn't know about this kid. So there's that part. Um, the main part is, can you have a highlight tape? It sounds silly, but I've, I've literally had emails of, uh, how do I get on Den Camp? Here's a nomination form. And they leave the, you know, there's a, there's a link, uh, one of the fields to put in a YouTube link or of your highlight tape and they leave it blank. And I'm a nice guy. So if you leave it blank, I filter it. And everybody's left it blank. So out of 400, it might be like 50. I'll copy them all. I'll send you all one email together. I'm not that nice. And I'll blind copy you and say, hey, we haven't got a highlight tape from you. And 80% of the responses, I don't have one. I'm not responding after that. I'm not going to be like, this is how you do a highlight. No. Like, what, what you want us to pick us off your name and your height and where you live and your coach? And we want me to call your coach now? So that for me is like you're, you're already hurting yourself out many highlights because – like you said, the top guys, I don't, we don't need to see highlights. You know, we know you play for your national team, you're, you're doing your thing. I don't, we don't need to see highlights. It's where those bottom guys come in. We, we're comparing you against someone. If you have no footage, there's no comparison. You're off the list. So I think there's that part. And then also don't feel discouraged if you don't make it. You know, like our, our best story, and I, this story today, and I posted it on Instagram because he came, to, he was in Dallas, our, our camp out there, is Moses Baikozo. He did not get selected for the camp. He was missed. 2015, we missed him. We, me, selection panel, he's not even on the, he, he was on the reserve list, but he wasn't at the top. And then someone pulls out, and then Andrew Norton calls me. Again, it's Andrew Norton out here. I'm saying a lot about it. She calls me and says, why, have, why is Moses, she was on the selection panel, she's not on it. She says, why is Moses not in it? And I was like, Moses? She's like, you know Moses? I said, no. Nah. She goes, well, he's ABL. And I'm like, oh, ABL. But then it was like, ABL, like, he's ABL. So we've got some guys in ABL. Is he the best player? She goes, he's the best player in ABL. I'm telling you, he's, he's a top five kid. And I was like, Andrew. And I respect Andrew. So I'm like, send me something of him. She sends me the tape. I put it into like our group chat. And then everyone is like, oh, shit, we missed him. I know that kid. I remember it was, um, you know, Lloyd Garner was one of them. Like, and he called me separately. He's like, damn, man, we 100% we missed him. I was like, all right, cool, we missed him. Luckily, someone can't make it. They pull out. Because I'm like, we can't have 51 on the camp. It's top 50. So straight away, message him. He didn't respond. He didn't email us and say, because we get so many emails from parents and kids, like, you didn't pick me, your mistake. And I'm like, all right. He didn't say nothing. He didn't go on social media like some kids have and said I should have got picked. He didn't say nothing. So uh, we messaged him from Den Camp. He sends his email. I emailed him from my account. I apologize. And he said, it's cool. I'm, you know, stay ready. Is what he, you know, it was our thing. He's like, I'm staying ready. Like, all right. This guy comes in, number one kid. And I was like, I didn't expect it. I was like, he's in. I'm happy for him. I didn't be like, he's in. Here's a great story. He's going to be number one. He was number one the whole camp. He came in with a chip on his shoulder. So he didn't look at it as like, you know, I'm going to go and be, you know, he, he's, he didn't think he was going to be on the camp. But that's how Moses' kind of mindset is. I think more British players got to be like that. Like, you didn't, pick, you didn't pick me. I don't need validation for it. So I think it's that part. If you didn't get selected for any of these things, you know, national team, Den Camp, Boots Fix Classic. What are you going to do about it? You, you can't control that. So I think it's um, something you need to use maybe to, to fuel you or 
you know, just, you know, we say stay ready on our, on our camps, our thing. It's like, you know, you just keep moving forward. So you can use it as motivation, but this kind of getting your parent to email us, getting your coach to email us, uh, you know, to me, that's weak. I don't, I would never have done that as a player. So I put my player hat on. I think if you didn't get selected, you didn't get selected, you know, um, if we miss you, we miss you. But, you know, that for me, I don't like it. I don't, I don't like when they do it, especially on social media, because it just makes you look bad. You know, like we're not trying to purposely not select kids. There's just reality of it. And that's America for you. You know, like um, that's how they're brought up here. Um, they're brought up to be, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. I mean, I remember when I first met my wife and we spoke about, do you play sports? She's like, you know, you do basketball or whatever. She says, I played volleyball, but I got cut when I was 10 years old. I was told I wasn't good enough. I said, okay. And she goes, I said, do you carry on? She's like, no, not good enough. I said, how do you, what do you do? She said, I stopped playing. I was like, at 10, they told you. I said, oh, we're all inclusive in England. Like, you just play and enjoy it. She's like, well, my dad and mom said, we're not going to invest money on something if you're not very good at it. And they just say you don't have potential. So she stopped, doesn't, not sporty now. You know, she's a brainiac, works for Morgan Stanley. She's in finance and that's her path. But, you know, I think it's this whole kind of, you know, everyone's got to be inclusive in British basketball, which drives me crazy. Like it's, if you want to be elite and you want to be good at something, you've got to be told, actually, you're not good at it right now. Do what you want with that. You know, my wife decided she's not going to continue to play sports. I'm not saying that's what happens if you, you don't make den camp or whatever. But that mindset is just weak to me. I just, it just, it, it really does. And I, I used to get upset with those messages. And I'm sure you get them as well with classic. And it used to bug me. I'm like, oh man, now I'm just like, I literally look at them and some coaches reached out and being respectful about it. And they're like, can we have a conversation about it? And I'm like, no, because I don't have conversations with people about it. So I open that up. Everyone, every coach, one of them, oh, you know, I call Steve A, told me why they can make it. Oh, and then I get a parent. And I get, no, I'm not telling you why they didn't make it. They didn't make it. That's it. End of. Like, if you want to, make up your own mind why they didn't make it fine but um that that's really big for me is that i've stopped stopped really kind of explaining why you didn't make it you just didn't make it and that's the end of it do what you want with it on the on the sort of the mentality side of things um you know in the flow podcast obviously coaches on on with you guys on on den camp and we're speaking about the difference in in mentality between you know british players and obviously now you've got you've got camps in the, in the usa and you've got camps in, in australia yeah. as well um Kind of what would you say about the difference in mentality and, and sort of where the young British player mindset is at? I mean, and I, I, I mean, me coaching here at high school at Elite Girls High School team, that's helped me as well get really into mindset. Because camp, I, you know, I don't get to see the kids that much because I'm organizing it. But I'll, I'll get to, you know, find out a bit more about them. But me, definitely over the last two years coaching for girls high school, I saw a massive mindset mindset shift from me coaching, say, the national team with under 15 girls. And these kids, there's a huge different mindset. I think the biggest mindset I've found difference um, here in the US is they they really, they understand the competition aspect of who they are. And everyone is trying to get where they are. They understand that. They understand that. They're always looking over the shoulder, I need to work harder than the next person because they're doing, they really understand that part. In the UK, I think we're very comfortable. I think we're well, and I'm definitely one of those guys. When I played, I look back at it like, if you're one of the best players, it's quite hard to get out of your comfort zone sometimes because you're the best player on your team. You're kind of coasting through practice. You play on, like, say, EABR and you're, it's very easy for you. You might play Division One. It's a bit tough, but it's still kind of easy for you. That mindset of constantly trying to push yourself, uh, look over your shoulder like, who's got my spot? Well, no one because your spot is safe. And... British basketball is a safety net for so many people 
me included, it was my safety net. Look, I was able to go to America, come back straight away, rock up where I want to, Jack Muski is a sports scholarship here, here, try and go to Germany, didn't work, come back, still got NBL Division One, And that's the mindset also when they go to America is, you know, a lot of people say you shouldn't go to America. Why not? Because if you go to America, it doesn't work. You're coming home anyway. That's there. Whether you go to America, it doesn't work out. The safety net of British Bass was there, which is a good thing. But it's also detrimental because there's so many people that aren't being pushed. They're not looking over their shoulder. And when I look at my girls' high school team, we have seven freshmen this year. And they've come in. I mean, our team was stacked last year. You know, four Division One kids, two top 20-ranked kids. We were number five in the nation. Our team was so good that we knew when they got to their senior year, they're the studs. But those three years before that, they were, you know, they were freshmen. And I think the high school system we have from 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 out here you know, it's very different. We don't get that academy route until, you know, you already get two years of it. So going 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, the high school of you being freshman, sophomore and being in the same environment, you know, always playing against better players, you know, like our seven freshmen coming in now when we, before COVID, when we started our practices, you can see some of the sophomores and juniors, like my, my spot might be taken. You can see it straight away. Cause we have a really, really, I mean, we have Gilbert Renus's daughter, Zach Randolph's daughter. They're two stud freshmen. We have a stud uh, starting point guard. You know, she's going to be top 20 ranked in her class. Year. So we have re- three really, really good freshmen. And our other freshmen are pretty good as well. We were surprised how good they were. So you can already see, we're not even practicing, but they come into the gym and you can see rivalry instantly. And this is young girls who don't, who kind of sometimes, especially UK, shy away from rivalry. You can feel it. And we're doing nothing. We're doing just drills. We're not doing any... Co- and the season's, you know, it's supposed to start, it was supposed to start in November, it's going to start probably in March. I think that is what's massively missing. Uh, and it happens at camp, though. That's what's crazy. So when we come to Den Camp, everyone's looking around because it's like, I want to be ranked. Who's here? Who's not here? Who's in my position? Who's watching me? Where are the scouts? It already, you can see, like, some people crumble in Den Top 50 because they're not used to the pressure. I can count every single year someone's asked to leave. Every year someone's like, I want to go home. I can't do this. It's not for me. And we're not building that environment. And it's tough. And I think some people are trying to build that environment in what they have. But reality is, because of the production line, there's not a lot. There's not a big production line in the UK. And there's not many gaps to fill because it's like, these are our teams. This is what we have. You know, um, I think that's what's missing, the competitiveness. I really do. And I think it's looking over your shoulder like, oh, my God, you can coast in the UK and be the best. You can't coast in the U.S. and be the game. I tell you right now, and, our, and I look at our boys' high school team with LeBron's kid and Dwayne Wade's kid. and Just, just for context for people, I, you're at Sierra Canyon High School, right? Sierra Canyon High School, yeah. So, in, LA. Um, in L.A., yeah. So the boys you know, have LeBron's son and Dwayne Wade's son, and our girls' team is you know, highly ranked. We're really good. So, and I see it at the boys. i got to watch the boys practice. They practice before or after us. I watch all their practices just to see what, you know, what it's like, obviously see what stuff they run. And... Um, you, you just, it's, it's like then camp every day then. You can just see it. Um, and it's because everyone's fighting for not only a spot at high school, spot for a college scholarship. And I just think um, it's something that it's hard to create, um, but it's definitely missing. I think that's a big gap in the UK for sure. Just out of interest, if, like how far behind do you think in the UK we are? So if you, if you were to take Sierra Canyon's boys and girls team, put them in the EABL to WABL, what would be the result? Boys team, it's not even, they're going to win easy. I mean, last year they had, you know, a look at their best guys. So Brandon Boston went to Kentucky. 
Amari Bailey's the top ranked 2022 kid. He's going to go UCLA or whatever. They had Zaya Williams who went to Stanford. Um, their team this year is just as good. They recruit heavily. So we're in a, it's tough because I'm at a high school situation where we're a private high school where we can recruit and we have a lot of money. So um, if I just compare California to the UK, it's probably easier because we're nationally ranked both teams and it's just so big, the US. So we just, our teams are really good. I look at, so Holly Winterburn's prime example. She would start on our team last year. She'd be our best player. Maybe, maybe, because Vanessa De- De Jesus was our best kid. She's starting at Duke. Ashley Savai starting at Texas. And then Alexis Marks starting at Boise State. They're our three best players. And then Holly fits in that group, right? She's right there. So you look at Holly, who's best player in the UK by a long way for age, arguably top five in WBBL, arguably. I think she's higher, but it would be, be politically correct. She's a stud. She's one in generation. She's a Savannah Wilkinson type. She's, you know, and she's not going to be the best player on our team out here. So you put our kids in WABR, and I coached it at Cola my last year. Yeah, we're going to pretty much house every team um, every year. We will. But now I've played against some other high schools here in California. They're really bad. So I'm not saying it's like, oh, my God, California girls basketball is amazing. No. Like, they're, you know, there's the top, top players in the UK, boys and girls, can play top high high school level. So then top 50 kids that are 17, you know, like Cam Hildreth, he's going to start at Sierra Canyon. There's there's no two way about it. I'm not going to sit here and say it's so much better. You know, like Cam would start on Sierra Canyon. Um, he would be a ranked kid out here for sure if, if he was out here. So it's just production. There's just so much more here. You know, I look at our worst player on Sierra Canyon high school girls team. She's going to be one of the better players under 18 in the UK. Like she really will be, and that's just the reality that we have. It's just production. It really is production line. You mentioned it there. That one of the things I did want to touch upon was that that cola group that that you worked with. Um, yeah. You know, obviously one of the well, arguably one of the all time well, one of the all time great junior uh, female British teams that we've had. Right. Um, <coughs> excuse me. What What would you say, kind of, about your experience with them and? And also, I guess, just in a, you know, I've always had massive respect for obviously what, what Jackson's building down at Cola, uh, kind of that program, what he's doing with the kids. Um, and I guess what, what separates them, what, what led to a situation where, you know, you've got a, a, a junior team that's, that's winning everything um, at junior level and, and senior level. Yeah, I think with Cola, it was crazy because, you know, I, my young coaching career, I was straight in at Brixton. So Brixton was like, here you go, you're going to coach Brixton, took the women's team, had some success with him. And then where the club was going, it was like, we just need to get away from, and it was, I was the chairman at the time. So I had a, I was heavily up with Jimmy on the decision to cut the senior teams. That was tough because I was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm coaching the women's team and we're in a women's BBR. I'm getting young players through. It was a tough decision to make, but it was right for the club. So my mind was like, I'm going to stop coaching and I'm just going to be chairman of Brixton. That's going to be, I'm going to just heavily put myself into this and rebuild it. And then, um, I, I, I remember two weeks in, I'm like, man, I miss coaching. This is crazy. So I just, me and Jackson, we friends for a while. We used to play scrimmages in the summer. My Brixton team against his Cola team. We would always be on the phone talking about X's and O's. We'd, you know. So I mentioned, him, I said, look, like this, is what's going to happen? Like Brixton's going to, is it's folding. You know, it's not going to happen this this year. What do you think about me coming over there? And he was just, yes, that was it. Yeah, come on, come to practice tomorrow. Okay. I went to practice, um, didn't know what to expect. I knew his team was good because we played against them. I knew he had some young talent. So I go into the gym 
And all I know is Brixton Topcats. That's all I know. I know my team, how I'm coaching. So I get there and I'm like, I'm assuming it's going to be very similar to how I coach. It's going to be, you know, like drills and the kids kind of enjoy it. And, you know, I know Jackson is a player. We played together at Westminster. He's going to be organized. He's going to have some nice stuff. So I get there and then I'm like, Jackson's just on the side doing nothing. Like he's not really running the practice. He's kind of, I say nothing. He's just kind of just there on his sitting on his table. And I, I walk in and he said, come to practice at this time. So I get one like five minutes early, but the kids are already in the gym. So kids have to get early to practice, which at Brixton, we didn't really have that rule. It was kind of like, this is the practice time. So kids are warming up, they're leading it, they're doing their own thing. You can see younger kids, older kids. So I walk in, I go sit next to him and then he's just head down going through practice. He's not watching what they're doing. And I was very kind of controlling as a coach. I'm like, yo, like, you're not going to watch the kids doing it properly. So that kind of blew my mind. Like, that's, you know, I didn't know how to take it. And then as practice starts going, I just see how, how intentional he is of what he says. He doesn't say much. He's very intentional. He's very detailed, which I thought I was detailed, but he's way more detailed than I was. And how player-led it is. That was what shocked me the most. You've got like Toyosi and Ire. Toyosi's very quiet, but she leads by just how she plays. Ire's very vocal. You had Evelyn, um, uh, Emerald, very you know quiet, knows what to say. And you had Cheyenne and all these, and everyone was just kind of knew what they were doing. They knew their roles. But when he spoke, it was like dead silence. It reminded me of Joe White. So if you ever seen that Joe White, when he coached, he would speak, everyone was just quiet. So he had the respect, but he didn't have Joe White's respect as I'm this big guy. That's, you know, he's very kind of, you know, strong. This is how it's going to be. He was very kind of softly spoken about it. Then I was like, oh, this is what culture is. Because I've heard culture. And I was like, do you have culture? It's very big. Everyone has these books. And I was like, you have culture at your club. In my mind, I'm like, yeah, we win at Brixton. I'm like, that's our culture. We win. And then I went, women's BBL, we don't win anymore. So this isn't our culture. But I was like, yeah, we have a winning mentality, right? This is, And I was like, that's not culture when I got there. And this is my first practice. I'm watching it like, oh, my God. Like, this is what they talk about culture. This is where it's player-led. But he knows when he needs to interject. He runs really good stuff. He's technical but he lets them play and everyone's playing to their strengths. Like everyone is able to get a piece of the pie without it being, because my teams, you know, had better players than I'm just running stuff. That's how I played. I'm like, you know, we're going to run stuff for you. We're going to share the ball, but we need it. And he just got everyone. And I was like, this is crazy. So I would say in the first three weeks, four weeks of being there, I learned more being at Cola than I had being a head coach for the last three years. Like this is just insane. And I was just soaking it all up. I was just soaking it all up. And then, I would say two weeks in was the first time he said, all right, I'll come up because he would just, he's like, all right, you've got this section here. I was like, cool, that's it. He didn't say oh, what you want you to do. And it was talking about introducing a new offense because we were talking about running a new offense. He's like, you got it. And then within, you know, five, six weeks, I'm running the offense for the team. He's just like, you got it. And I think that's what Jackson has is he has trust of his players, trust of his coaches. He has a culture that's player driven, but you don't get away with stuff. Like everyone calls him coach. That was new to me. Not all my players call me coach. Had some older players. Everyone calls him coach. To this day, people still call him coach. So if you've, you know, you're older and you've you've graduated um, college, he's coach. He's Coach Jackson. You don't call him Jackson, which I really liked, and that's something that I carried forward. So when I continue coaching, wherever I coach, I was like, people need to call me coach. So I think it was that. That's what I really learned. But the success that he's had gets passed through you can see it very you know when Ira left she's passing on to her sister and those players exactly how you should act so he doesn't have to reteach. and I think that's where you struggle 
when you coach is do I have to keep reteaching things? I learned that really quickly at Sarah Canyon that when you have kids for four years, which Jackson does have because as his under 16s, 18s, you're able just to teach and it's just a, a follow path where you don't need to keep reteaching the kids because you get your players to teach. This is what our culture is. This is how it's run. And I think that's what I learned the most from him. He's a great X and O's coach. Very underrated. Very underrated X and O's coach. Um, everyone talks about Jackson Gibbons. I was like, oh, you know, his culture, his culture, which is his best trait as a coach. I learned more about him than that. But very underrated X and O's. He's a very smart coach. He sees things that I don't think he gets credit for. Um, and he'll kill me for this, but he has, he has been asked, but he needs to be involved with national teams. He's been asked, so it's not like they've snubbed him. But he's someone that has to be involved with national team to teach that culture that they need because um, it's lacking in national teams. For me, when I coach national team, that culture is not there. It's it's toxic with parents. It's toxic with kids. It's toxic with selection process. And it hasn't got much better. I know that because I still speak to players and parents and, and coaches. He needs to get involved with national team and fix that early. And it's not just for girls. You can fix it across the board. But I know girls need more fixing it than the boys on the culture side. So that's a plug for him. But he'll kill me for that. He doesn't want to do it. I know. So he's always uh, he's so low key isn't he but um but yeah, yeah. unbelievable uh, uh, what he does so you yeah. did um four years coaching in the uk before you of course made the switch to to la uh yeah i'd be interested to hear just like whether that was a difficult decision like to go to la sort of leaving behind what you were building in the uk kind of your involvement with british bars which of course you stayed involved but it's very different being involved when you're yeah. in it and being involved from another country you know um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, kind of, what was the the, the sort of the the approach to it, the, the thinking around it, um, and how hard of a decision was it? It was it was really tough. So, you know, me and my wife been together seven years now, long distance, three years, and we never spoke about it, which is crazy. You know, like she's in LA, I'm in the UK, see each other as much as we can. Luckily, with my job, I could travel, so I come to LA a lot. And then she said she just gave me a real quick ultimatum, like, "What are we doing here?" One of us has to move. Let's talk about it. It's like, okay. She works, at the time she worked at UBS. She now works at Morgan Stanley. So she's in finance. She can easily get a job. So she looked into it and she could transfer over. Now, when we both spoke about it, she was giving up way too much to come out. Way too much. Me giving up, you know, family. I don't have as much as she does out here. Um, basketball, I can do it anywhere pretty much. And I was okay leaving what I was doing with Luol because I've been doing it a long time. I was okay leaving British basketball at the time, even though I really enjoy coaching. I was like, you know what? Maybe this is something that I didn't want to get out of British basketball. Um, I still had that need to fight and stay in. But I also was like, you know what? I'm, you know, people that know me, I'm, I'm kind of open to, you know, I used to talk about a basketball career. I'm kind of open to looking at new stuff and kind of moving on. So. I actually spoke to the wall and said, look, I'm thinking about potentially moving to LA. He's like, okay. I said, now I'm not asking you to keep me on. I'm thinking I might go look at, there was two jobs. There was one at the Clippers and there was one at the Sparks. There was a community job at the Clippers that was open and Sparks more of a kind of running camps alongside their sponsors. So there was these two jobs that I kind of looked at. Uh, Clippers, I spoke to on the phone, explained what I did. And they were like, yeah, we need someone to come in and run our community stuff. The issue with that was there was no visa. So I had to get married. I was like, okay. So I spoke to my wife about it. And we were at that time where, you know, we've been here for three years. And I was like, look, if I get married, I get this fiance visa. I can work for the Clippers. They said, as long as you get here and you have your, you have a green card, no problem. The job is yours. So I was like, cool. 
So I went to the wall and said, all right, this is my plan. All right, I'm going to move to LA, I'm going uh, to marry my wife now, and I'm going to work with the Clippers. And he kind of looked at me, and anyone knows the wall, like, he's like, uh, doesn't get phased much. He's just kind of very, you know. Um, so he looks at me and goes, yeah, okay. And I said, okay, what? Okay, like, that's what I want to do. And he's like, nah, you're not doing that. I said, okay, what am I doing then? He said, you're going to go to LA. Okay, he's like, I'm happy for you. You know, he re- he met my, my wife a couple of times. He loves her. He's like, I think it's right for you. It's a good decision. Um, but you're going to still work for me because I want to run camps in the US. And I want to run camps in Australia. I want to camps in Africa. And I want you just to head up all my, so you just come back to run the UK August, come back for a couple of weeks. And then you're going to run all that stuff. How's that sound? And we were in Vegas when this happened. So we got every year to Vegas. So I'm just sitting in his in his hotel room and I'm like, so I had to say, yo, are you drunk? Because I don't, don't be playing with this idea. And then, you know, and he's like, no, come on. Like, this is what we're going to do. I said, you sure? He's like, enjoy Vegas when we get back. Uh, let's talk about it. I was like, okay. So then we had the call afterwards. It's what I'm going to do. Spoke to my wife about it. Cool. So not the most romantic thing, but I'm like, we're going to have to, you know, do this 90 day fiance visa. Uh, and I felt like it was a good decision. I felt like I had something. I didn't want to come to LA and have nothing because I'm, re- I'm relying on my wife and I have no money. So I was like, and we agreed on that. So when I told her that she's like, cool, all right, that sounds good. Um, so my, my kind of like last part of British basketball was with Cola. So I'm like, I'm going to stay with Cola. We're going to win everything. Cause I knew we would, our team was so good. Um, we were destined to win it when I was like, I'm going to come to the U S so I put in my visa form and then it ended up coming in December and it was supposed to come in March. And when you get it, you, you can't say, I got to wait, you got to go. So I was like, ah, I was like, all right, got it in December. I left the next day. So I called Jackson. I was like, dude, I've got my visa. I've got to go. I'm going tomorrow. I'm packing my bags. I'm going to get my 90 days to get married. And it was so quickly done. I didn't say bye to people. I had to just get on a plane and go. And I was okay with it. I wasn't, I was, you know, when I, I mean, the hardest part was I got a little homesick when I first got here, but then the wall calls me and he ends up getting traded to the Lakers. I was like, you just keep following me. That helped me massively because when he came to LA, him and his brother moved here and I'm able just to go hang out with him for the first six months. It helped me massively. So that really helped. But yeah, it just kind of, it happened very quickly. Um, I do miss British basketball a lot. I miss, cause I wanted to continue to coach the national team. It was something I wanted to do. I wanted to be the head coach of the U16 girls team. It was a goal of mine. After being the assistant, I felt like three years from from now, from then, I would have been the head coach. Um, I wanted to continue work with Cola. I loved it. Me and Jackson spoke about one of us running a women's team, one of us heading up the U19. So he would move me to head coach of one of the teams, which was probably what uh, would have happened. But you know, it was a it was a decision I made, and I, I don't regret it. And now I have a beautiful daughter with her, um, and it's yeah, it's the best decision I think I ever made in my in my life. So I'm happy. So, yeah. There's a couple more things I want to touch upon. Um, obviously, to do with, with the move, like, you know, one of the things in amongst all of this, uh, there was the launch of She's Got Next, um, yeah. which is essentially a recruiting service. You're working with helping place sort of the top British girls um, into the US college system. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. Um, sort of scouting, database, player profiles, all, all of that kind of good stuff. Yeah. I guess, like, <laughs> Now that you've sort of been in this position, you've helped place a lot of lot of females. Um, you've kind of seen the game on both sides of the pond up close. How would you compare the female game in the UK to the US? How would you compare um, the sort of the biggest differences? How far 
we have to go. If, you know, if it is a lot like I, I think one of the things that a lot of coaches said to me that, that actually um, the difference like with boys, the difference is so much the physicals, but with females, because obviously the, the, the physicality isn't quite the same, younger girls can compete. And so in the UK, we're actually not as far behind uh, potentially as we would be. Um, but I'd love to hear kind of your just take on the entire sort of comparison between the two, uh, where, we, where we're potentially lacking when we're talking about placing girls in, in the US college system, um, what we need to work on. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's definitely more girls going. So, I mean, you look at the statistics, um, you know, this is more girls are going every year. So U.S. coaches must be seeing something. You know, there is social media. I get it. It's easier to recruit with online. But U.S. colleges aren't just going to take a kid because they're going to take a kid. You know, this recruitment process is tough. You know, and I've spoke to a lot of coaches. Everyone does it slightly different. But essentially, you're on a board wherever you end up top middle bottom you're going to move up and down when they lose kids and it's it's a tough system to be in you know you're basically just a person on a school's board and based on how other people where they go to and how you may improve or not will move you up and down so it's a tough process i think internationally it's becoming a huge recruitment uh, avenue for coaches now there's so many i mean australia right now has got more girls ever than going to the US there's so many so I think the competition is becoming tougher I think it's really tough now to get a scholarship um, you know it's the, I would say the last four girls I've helped have been tougher than the first four girls I helped way tougher um, that's based on just there's just less um, scholarships available um, coaches aren't willing just to take a punt anymore they're losing jobs based on international recruitment International players are a game changer to programs now where before they weren't. American kids are American kids. They know what they can get. They're looking for kids that they can't get in America. And unfortunately with the UK, like you said, they are quite similar. You know, like uh, a good kid in the UK, they can find in the US. That's where they don't want those kids. They want kids that they cannot find. You know, so you look at someone like Susanna Refu, who's heavily recruited right now. Um, She's not a typical British player. She can shoot it. She can put it on the floor. She's got length. She's athletic. You can play her in different positions. She can switch ball screens. You can go big and go small. She's very versatile. They can find those kids in the US, but they don't always get them. So this is where the board comes into play. So Susanna Refu might be on you know, a power five board. She might be behind two or three players. But if they don't get those players because they go somewhere else, up she bumps, up she bumps. And that's where Holly Winterburn gets to Oregon. Is Holly good enough to play in the Pac-12? Absolutely. Is she good enough to go to Oregon? Yes, but luck comes into play. Oregon, who are you getting? Who did you not get? We need now this kid to fill a spot. So Holly could have, you know, she had incredible amount of scholarships. Um, you did a, you did your, I love that one when you, you know, you guys did your interview and she explains very well why she chose them and the, the good and the bad part of it. But I think where the UK girl is struggling to get to the US, is what are you doing that they cannot find in the US? What do you have that they can't find? Academics is huge. So some kids, academically-wise, already wiped out. So now you're, you know, because academics is so much different in the US. So a lot of academic, you know, like Molly James, for example, who's just signed, she signed today, her academics are good enough where that's not going to determine any Division two school for her, not whatsoever. If she had better academics, like really, really good academics, like, you know, um, Holly's really, really good academically, she probably would have got more Division One offers. But the academic part comes in, especially when you get to California and New York, 
um, Florida, you need good grades. You need to have good GPA to get in. And sometimes it just falls flat for some UK kids. So the grades part you can control, you can't, but that comes into play. So there's a lot of, you know, intangibles that come in, but you know, I say it to every person that I help. No American coach is going to call you or get on a plane to come and see you or go to the WAVA website and check up on you. It's your job to do the other way around. The girls that I've helped and have got more offers aren't necessarily more talented than someone else, but they've been more proactive. They have decided that, and I tell them, you need to get on websites and you need to get collate emails and email and email and email or text or text or watch games. And when you know someone doesn't, you feel like you could help that team explain why you can help. Be a lot more personal. Message coaches by their last name, not just a generic email. You know, like there's that type of things that you can control, but it's a lot of work. And some kids are like, I don't want to do it. And I'm like, well, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, you're not. And I think it is harder to get scholarships now than ever, you know, from me looking back at the Kylers and the Janelle Grants and Paige Robinsons to now Molly, James, Jane Mabam, it's tougher, you know, and is a talent slightly dropped? Yes. And that extent, we look at those players, but it's not that much, you know, they're very close to them. But it's just harder to get recruited now. It really is. And you've got to be proactive and you've got to find what do you have that U.S. players, they can't find here. That's what they're looking for, you know. So And also internationally, what other international players have. So it's a, it's a hotbed right now. And it's becoming harder to get scholarships. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best out here to with my new scouting service to push the game more on, on coaches. And hopefully they start looking more at UK rather than we have to keep pushing, pushing our end. That's where it is at the moment. So, yeah. There's been a lot of talk this summer about the the US pathway as a route for for British talent. You know, obviously I did a podcast with yeah. BBL owners where there was a, a some quotes about kind of uh, most kids going to the states are wasting their time. Um, you yeah. know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not we can set up a system to keep kids at home so they don't leave to have to leave to go to the states and they, we can actually develop our own talent rather than even sending them away. Obviously, yeah. in your situation, we we know which way you're leaning, but. Uh, Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to kind of hear you go, just uh, sort of riff on that a little bit. Um, your feelings about it, you know, with, for for a kid that's weighing up their options, why you feel so strongly about um, the US route? Well, firstly, I don't think every kid should go to U- US. That's a, I think everyone has this stigma around like I'm like, oh, every British player should go to the UK. No, I go on two ways of talent and mindset. Some people aren't, you know, sh- mentally strong enough to withstand not only being away from home, but that environment, like it's tough. You know, like you, you speak to any US college athlete of what they do and their schedule and, you know, you know, it's really tough, especially when the higher level you go, the more you're asked off the court and also on the court, it's, it's, um, it's tough. So I, I don't think everyone should go. Now, what, and I was very close to tweeting about this, but I held back because it really, it really, it pissed me off when I saw it. Because Vince McCauley, who I have a lot of respect for, and I really like what he does, with, what he's doing with London Lions, and I like him a lot. He comes to Den Camp every year, and I really like him. Him to say 90% of UK players are wasting their time to go to America, it's dangerous to say that. Why it's dangerous to say that is, what, where have you got that from? 90% is a huge amount. So you're saying 90% of the people that go out to America are wasting their time. I want to understand where you've got to from that, because... What else are those kids doing? Are you offering them BBL contracts? And again, all these BBL owners are saying, well, they're not ready yet. Okay. And they're not ready when they go to the US. So if they're not ready when they come out of the ABL, right? You're 19. 
I agree. You're not ready to play in the BBL. Okay. So what do you want them to do? You want them to come and sit on the bench and develop through a university system, which is okay. Don't get me wrong. Some teams, you know, I've, I've seen, I played in Bucks and I don't think it's got much better. But their outlet is to play Division One and Bucks, and then maybe they get better. And I, Alex Roberts, what he said, I liked because I, I like Alex a lot. For him, it worked. He stayed in the UK. He went to Loughborough. For him, it worked. He said it was good for him. Now, if Alex Roberts went to America and did the same thing and got a free education, what's the difference? I want to know what the difference is. Why is he wasting his time doing that when he stayed in the UK and got something he said very similar, or if not better? Okay, no problem. Now. Girls' side, because boys' side is slightly different, and I still don't think it's much. Girls' side, there's no way anybody can tell me, because that's why Vince says 90%. Are you talking about 90% males? That's why it's dangerous, because girls will listen to that. You're saying 90% of players. He didn't say men. So that's including girls. What are they staying for? I want to know what British girls, when they hit 18, 19, are going to stay in the UK for, when they can go get a free education, a life experience, everything that they want and if it fails it doesn't work for them they're going to come home like most kids and then what they're going to do they're going to either play division one or stop playing wbbl some might play pro barking have brought back some kids that have you know finished scholarships you know janice is doing great jayanne's back okay so if janice and jayanne didn't go to the states and get their free education and have that experience because the life experience is what always seems to be taken out of this thing like Life experience is, is key for a lot of these kids growing up and learning that, you know what, you have to go through some adversity, which you don't hit in the UK because the UK, like I said, is a safety net. There's that part where they've come back and they've had a great life experience. They've got a free degree and now they're back in the UK playing. I want to know if they didn't go to Toledo, what's the difference? They're still going to be playing in the UK. They might go to Loughborough and get a degree. Okay, I get it. And people say transferable studies. Sometimes it doesn't work. Well, then do your research. You go to a U.S. college, find out what degree you're going to do that you can use it and come back and do your master's, which a lot of U.K. kids have done. A lot of America, and they say it doesn't transfer. How many American people come here and do master's? Everyone does it at Bucks. Everyone, BBL, women's BBL, you come back, you do your master's degree. So we're saying it doesn't transfer. Well, it seems to be transferring well for BBL and WB, US, U.S. imports that come back. So I think for me, the, the stigma around... I think everyone should go is incorrect, but why would you not try something knowing British basketball is your safety net? Because you can come back anytime. And the crazy thing is I could probably fly back to UK tomorrow and I can play in the UK. I'm 37. I haven't played for so long. I can play division one for fun. Most division one teams are like, yeah, you can come play. You need to get in shape, but you know, I can do that. And I think it's a good thing and a bad thing. It is. It's the value of British basketball, right? It's, you know, like you can always, it's always there. It's always there for me. I can come back. I can love it and hate it. But when I want it, you know, I'm going to use it. I think that's where we are. British basketball, me included, you know. So I think that's my view on, on the US is that everyone seems to be moving to this negative uh, connotation around it, which I'm trying, I'm struggling with because some kids are having bad experiences. I get it because they're not educated and they're going to the wrong programs. Uh, I understand that part of it. I think that's something that maybe basketball England can help with and I did that you know the TAS research I was on a, a call for an hour and 30 minutes with the lady from TAS you know and um, I actually enjoyed that phone call because when she got on the call to me she says to me I don't know about that I didn't hear about that I never knew about this kid I didn't hear that she's like most of the things that I've heard are 
from players that are positive. And then most of the things I'm hearing from coaches and owners is negative. And I'm like, okay. And I sit in the middle because I'm neither. And I'm like, I'm just telling you the experiences, what I hear and what I deal with. And not everyone that goes to America has a positive experience. I get that. I'm not saying everyone will. Um, but again, the need to try because people are doing it. You want a free education. You want to see what you can do. And it does come back to, again, like what Nama Shira said to me, how good can you be at this game? How limited are you in the UK? You know, like we know resources in the US are very different to the UK, especially when you start going up the higher level of how much resource they have for you, educationally wise as well, and uh, on the court with everything. You're going to give it a go and see how good I can get. And if it doesn't work out, I can come back, live a month, and go maybe to, you know, to, to university or college here. I can play or I can get a job. You know, it's, so I think that's my, my kind of take on it, that um, you know, it's uh, the negative part for me. I get it. But why are we moving too much that way? I'm interested to see the research come out. I'm really interested to see where that leans to. Is it right down the middle? Is it, you know, and I don't know what Boston are going to do with it. I'm actually worried what they're going to do with it. I'm being honest. I don't know how you take that information and now you're going to distribute it and say, this is what we found and leave it. What are you going to do with that? Because it's very opinion based. It's not necessarily, you know, the facts. Who have you asked? How long ago? Have you asked someone from 10 years ago or is it just the last five years? I'm worried. I'm going to be honest with you. When I see it, I'm going to read it. Um, I'm going to definitely speak to Charlie Ford about it. Um, because it's something I'm in. I'm in that world, right? I'm in the recruitment service. I'm in the college world. I'm out here. I see it. I speak to kids. I speak to coaches, both ends. So um, I'm intrigued to see that. But yeah, um, I sit heavily on coming to the US and it's paid for. You don't have to pay because some people are paying. I don't agree with that. I think if you can get a free scholarship out here and your life experience and in love basketball, you're going to grow as a person. I'm all for it. I really am. Just for context for people, that is um, basketball England essentially engaged with TAS and TAS are doing this research into the US college pathway. The research, I think, is going to be released in January, I think is, is the plan. Yeah. Uh, and they've spoke to a bunch of different people around the game to sort of look at the US college route as a, as a potential pathway for, for young players in, in the UK. Um, so there's a couple, couple more uh, bits that I would, I'd just uh, be interested to talk about. One is eligibility. Uh, you know, you're one of the few people that really has your head around uh, what it takes for a player to be eligible to go to college and what the potential issues are and what, where um, kids are getting it wrong uh, in terms of, you know, whether it's coming to coming to the US and going to high school and, and the years and everything else. But so, so yeah, I'll just be interested to kind of just hear you talk about what the biggest things you, you are finding kids are not understanding, kids and parents, that they should know about yep. uh, to ensure that if they do want to take the US college route, um, these are things they need to have in order to ensure that they, they do have their full four years of eligibility. Sure. I mean, it's crazy because every time I, you know, now I'm doing a scouting service. When I did a recruitment service, I would be taking on essentially clients and I'll be speaking to parents and normally parent, uh, parents and the girl and we're on FaceTime and we, we talk. And I say to, I've done it, done it from the start, even when I started this back you know, six years ago, I'd say, what's the two things you need to get to America? You tell me. And none of them get it right. None of them. Parents will say, uh, you know, I need highlight tape. I need to be good. I need to get there. Anything you can think of. And they never come up with amateurism and academics. They never say it. They, they touch on academics. They don't understand actually what I need to get with GCSEs and what I need. So if you don't have an NCAA eligibility account, which 
does two things. It looks at amateurism and academics. If you don't have that, you cannot go to an NCAA school. You can go to a junior college but you or a prep school, but you're talking about NCAA Institute. You cannot do it. They, you have to be, they have to prove you to be eligible for you to get a scholarship and enroll in a school. That's the number one thing that people need to get their head around is that they need that. They'll need it if they go junior college and then move on. They need it if they go prep school and move on. You'll eventually need it when you go to college uh, in the NCAA. So that's the number one thing. I think the graduation timeline is where everyone falls up. You know, So we graduate in the UK different to when they graduate in the US. So this class year, which to me is so fundamental, it drives me crazy that kids don't know their class year. It's just the year that you graduate in the UK. So the class of 2020, you're just going to leave school at 2020. That to me is mind-blowing when I ask kids. What class you leave college to go to university? Correct. Yeah. So that's what everyone I speak to. I'm like, what class are you? They're like, they think because in the US they change their class year when they graduate. So they're like, if so, a kid that's going to Texas now, they might leave in 2024. Well, they've enrolled at school, so they're changed. I'm a 2024 now. That you're not a 2024 graduating high school. That's when you're going to graduate from Texas and you're going to get your diploma. For us, we just need to know your class year when you graduate from high school so then you can be recruited for that class year for colleges. The amount of kids that have got that wrong, that a coach will come back to me and say, their yeah, eligibility says, their account says they're 2021, but they're telling me they're 2020. And then I'm just like, when, when you leave in your, your WEBL uh, academy, well, I might do a third year. Okay, well, you, have, you, you can't tell them that yet. So if you do a third year, you will reclassify and you'll change it. But what you are right now, you're doing two years, you're 2020, keep it at that. That's where that to me has been mind blowing that I'm like, how do you, it's not hard, right? I, f- I find that quite easy. So that's fundamental. If you don't know your class year, you cannot be recruited because that's how schools recruit on class year. They have X amount of scholarships. So say four seniors have graduated from a division one school. They might have four scholarships open. So now they need to fill four scholarships in that class of you know 2020. So that's the number one thing. It's that. And then it's graduating. Like, when can I graduate? So kids are leaving early. Kids are leaving to prep school early. Kids are taking GCSEs and then and leaving to go to America, which you shouldn't be doing. So I go squeaky clean by NCAA guidelines. There are kids that have left the UK, done it the wrong way, and have ended up fine and gone to college. This is done because NCAA schools are very smart at being able to put in waivers, change in transcripts. They can do that. They're good at it. I don't do that. So my role with Manchester Academy is to advise all their kids on eligibility is one of the parts and all everything else that goes with it. I've done that for a year now. And this is the number one goal is, well, this kid left one year after EABL, so I'm going to do it. I'm like, you can't do it because you need to graduate from the UK before you can go to the US. And you have not graduated from the UK yet because you, you're going to graduate one year early. You can't do it. And they're like, well, he did it. And it's so hard for me to say, well, yeah, he did. And he's now at a school. Yeah, I know he's at school because what happens when they go to prep school is they just change their class year. They're able to move their transcripts around. It's not the best way to do it. They're clever. They figure it out. Um, Kane Henry's one that got hit really bad. So everyone knows the story of Kane Henry that he left too early, ended up in junior college, moved everything around, chaos, chaos, waivers, waivers. Chris Haslam comes in to be to just, he's a genius with eligibility. He's able to help and he's able to get to Jacksonville State for two years. But Kane Henry had a nightmare because he left too early. He should have stayed one more year. And that was what happened with him. So my advice to you is just do what NCAA do. Look at the graduation timeline when you can leave. The first time you can leave is after your GCSEs. We're too young. No one's doing that. 
that's when you can. You can effectively finish your GCSEs and go sign to a Division One school. No one's doing it. You're too young, and that's why the graduation timeline is really important. Most kids will do two years for the ABL. You hit 18, 19, and that's when you're a senior in high school pretty much. That's when most people go. The third year is just reclassifying. So you're just going to do a third year. That's fine. Your, your graduation, you, you're a 2020, now you're a 2021. My only suggestion on that is make sure you continue to do the right courses because some kids have not done that. You need to stay in full-time enrollment. You can't just stop playing and then I'm just going to go play Division One. You have to be in education. So you can do a third year at Myers Cove or Cola or Barking. And they're very switched on of what courses you have to take. Charmwood as well. They know what to do because some kids have taken the wrong courses and now they, you know, it's all a learning process. I've made mistakes in a lot of schools. But yeah, the graduation timeline for me is probably the number one thing where everyone gets mixed up. It's constantly like, I want to leave one year after here. I want to go prep school. And prep school is different because prep schools you can go to until you're 19 and to- take a postgrad. RJ Itorock is perfect example. He did two years at Barking. He reclassified and did his third year at a prep school. Petty is in the same conference as Blair. You can do a postgrad there until you're 19. Not all prep schools can do that. That's what happened with Kane Henry. He was hoping to do it and it messed up. So you can go to prep schools and stay there till 19, but only some of them if they do a postgrad. So again, it's asking those type of questions. So there's a lot to it, but um, it's all about asking, right? And a lot of these academy coaches are really good at it. I'm not a genius. You know, I've, I've asked Lloyd, Neil Hopkins, Jesse Zazent, Jackson Gibbons. I've asked so many questions of them to help me. It's just right now I'm in a position where I've got my head around it, where I'm pretty good at it. And most of the questions I kind of know the answers to. If I don't, I'll go and find out. But it's tough. It's a tough one. It really is. Do you feel like we're in a now, you know, and this I think has changed in, in recent years where it's actually uh, previous, I felt like a lot of kids would have to go to the States and do a year of prep school or high school to kind of get that exposure and, and be seen, so to speak, yeah. and get noticed. But actually now we're in a spot where so many players are able to go straight from the UK. They don't need to deal with any of the high yeah. school, the prep school stuff. They can just either do a third year here or just do the two years and then get the division one offer and go yeah. straight. Like, do you think there is a blanket rule in terms of advice for British kids of just saying, do you know what, just stick it out in the UK. Like actually the level of competition, you know, I would say that the vast majority of kids that go, end up going to high school are not really going to high level programs uh, that they're competing against, yeah. you know, the best kids in the States and, and, and paying a very competitive schedule. Where actually, if they were in the UK playing division one, They'll be playing at a better level than they would be in the states. Like, do you think there's any sort of blanket rules around that, or do you think it's just I, individual I case think, bases? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really big in individual cases. I've always done that with the my recruitment for girls, so I'd have to stick the same with boys. Is that everyone is different? What I will say is, you know, I heavily speak to Coach Montagna at Blair. It's moving towards prep schools being way higher level than high schools. Prep schools, you know, he's still in a prep school that's governed, but you have these like the grind session, right? So these are pop-up prep schools, they call them, where they're effectively not really a school. They'll have a basketball gym, they'll have some classes. Maybe the coach is also doing the lessons. It's kind of really crazy. They call them pop-up prep schools, but that's the best level right now. So these pop-up prep schools that play in the grind session, they are actually a better level than most high schools. So Sierra Canyon boys team that I watch, you know, in their league, because we're a private school, they play some pretty good teams. But when they go out of state and start playing these prep schools, you know, they played the number one team in Duncanville. They played them in uh, in Texas when we went out and played as well. They played Montverde, which is number one number one prep school. Um, you know, they, those schools are actually better 
and they're becoming the new wave. So me and Coach Montagna spoke about potentially something with Luau and South Sudanese kids of these kind of prep schools. It's something that we look at because it's the way that that's moving. The, the high school is getting a bit more diluted and prep schools becoming like Sam Alajiki, for example, is a perfect example. I, I'm being real honest. Is he going to cow from, from Kent or Barking? Maybe. Let's say maybe, right? It's tough. He goes out and does one year of prep school and absolutely destroys it. He's so athletic. He's just let off the leash and he gets to sign the cow, right? I think for him, it was ideal because the grind session is exactly what it is. It's the grind session. Everyone's hungry. Every kid is out there and he's that player. He's, he's just like high motor. He's got, he's got the division one body. Like, like a Michael Number who would have done, I think he would have done really well in like a grind session, the prep school stuff. So I think for him, individual basis, it was perfect for him. And he ends up getting an unbelievable offer and he's, he's going to cow, right? It's crazy. Um, but then you look at like, uh, Newbury, who's going to Princeton and Toast in Princeton, and they've done that through the UK. So, you know, it is individual basis, but I think uh, I think you're right. Like high school boys basketball isn't actually that much higher than uh, the ABL, if not. I mean, some states are good, but yeah, I, I agree. I think you know, like RJ doing the prep school was good for him. I don't think he had to. I think it was good for him though, just to accustom. I think he's going straight from Barking to UM. BC and doing really well. I think he's, you know, that good. Dan Akin as well. Um, but yeah, I I do agree with you on what you said about the athleticism part. I think in the UK they're more ready to jump straight from high school under nineteen straight into Division One. I, I do. I think they have. I think girls is slightly different. Um, I think what you said I would disagree with is actually athleticism is they're behind here with the girls more so. Um, I look at our girls and who we played over the last two years. It's insane how athletic these kids are. It's absolutely like Holly's very athletic and I compare her because she's the best of the best. You know, she's coming up against some really, some really super athletic kids. Um, Issy at Cola, we've seen dozen of kids like her out in the, here. So I think it's, um, it's give or take, but, um, you know, I think, uh, I, I would agree with you that, yeah, stay in the UK, third year, EABL, I think Division One. I think is a good route right now for the boys. Girls, it's, it's tough. I think them looking at um, prep is tough because there's not very many prep schools for girls. There really isn't here. It's not a big thing at the moment. So they don't really have a choice. But um, yeah, we'll see. It's, it, but I think individual based is where I'll go. But I do agree with you to some extent. I think it's, uh, it's not a bad option for the boys. When you got to the States, and obviously now I haven't been there three years what were the biggest things that surprised you that maybe, you know, I would assume you had some level of expectations around kind of the level of basketball and how it compared to the UK or like, is there anything that really you were like, I just didn't, this, I didn't take this into account. Or I didn't think that this would be like this. Uh, what were the biggest surprises? Yeah. Not, uh, so the biggest surprise was how good they are one-on-one. So, you know, we're, we're talk about any, any British female coach listening to this will know that the better kids can create their own shot in the UK. There's not many of them. You have to run a lot of action that is, you know, incorporating two-man, three-man game, a lot of movement. That's where it's kind of where European basketball is going anyway. And I kind of expected when I got here, maybe it was a bit more, nah, you've you got kids that can go and can score. You just give a kid, like our kid that went to Duke, Vanessa De Jesus, top 20 kid ranking. We need, we need you to score. You just give her the ball, she scores. Like, I never had that in the UK. I never had... I mean, I think Toyosi Abiola is the only kid that I've seen that 
when you needed someone just to score, you just give her the ball. You don't really have to run much or create some clever action where you give her an ISO. We would literally run like four low or give her a, like an Iverson cut, go ahead, score. Um, that's There's a lot of kids out here. Like every team we've played, especially last season, we were on a national schedule. We went to Texas. We went to Arizona, San Diego. Um, there's a stud on a team that can just score whenever they want. You just give them the ball, score. And we had three of them. We were really lucky this year. I think that's the number one thing that stood out playing-wise. Uh, this is going to be embarrassing to say, but I remember my first high school game. So we're practicing in our, our school, and I'm just used to the gym. And, uh, and we go to a away game. And we get on a bus, have a driver, take us to the game, pull up, got our own locker room. In that locker room, we've got a whiteboard. Uh, we have a key to lock it. Um, people are laughing at me because we know, like, in British basketball, it doesn't happen all the time, and it's so normal to them. Uh, we have that. Um, we get there. We have our own bench laid out. We have our names on the benches so we know where we're going. We have an announcer. We have a scorebook. We have stats. We have the same basketballs that we practice with is the game ball, so we don't have to worry about what game are we playing with. We only have basketball and volleyball lines on the court, which was the biggest one. I remember sitting down on the bench going, oh, my God, there's just hardly any lines. You can see the court. Well, if you know in UK, it's crazy. There's people at the game watching. There's a bunch of people watching, like crazy. Uh, everyone's filming the games. So we've got you know, our camera person filming it, their camera person filming it. We've got coaches in the stands. We've got parents filming the game. Um, so already I'm like, okay, this is – you know, we've got 14, 15-year-old girls on a team. We can compare WABL slightly, but we've got young kids, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, high school kids, freshmen. And there's people watching our game. And there's a concession stand where you can go and get food. So there's that. There's a shop where you can buy T-shirts of the high school. Um, and I didn't know this was an away game, so I assume this is just, a, you know, we're playing a good team. So I'm like, maybe our school's not like this. Um, you have to pay to get in. Now, this is something that I think is, uh, we can, I'll go into it a little bit, but Already I'm sitting there like this proper basketball. Like it's proper basketball that I'm the minibus driver for a double BBL team. I'm the one that washes our uniforms. I'm the one that tells the players we're in black, we're in red. We just take both sets of uniform of our team manager. So we get to the game. We know they're in that color, but we have it anyway. We have a locker room. I don't got to worry about getting to a gym and saying, where are we, where are we going to be? Are we in a leisure center where there's like other women showering while we're in the locker room and I'm trying to draw stuff up on the board? Where do we go for timeouts? Well, we've got a key. We go in here. You know, like there's water on the end of the bench that's already there for us. We don't need to worry about water bottles. You know, like the referees, you know, they're all dressed in the same. So they're easy to see because when we have, sometimes I've had games where, you know, darker gray, light gray, someone, sometimes they've been in different color trousers. So already it's like, this is a proper basketball game. I'm like, wow. So I'm just like literally there in headlights. Like this is just crazy to me. Everything's different. And then that's like that every single game. So three seasons in, every single game is exactly the same. So we know when we go to this gym, we'll have this locker room. We're going to have, and it just becomes normal. It's like, this is the norm. And I remember when it really hit home about the, that's the value of what, you know, the value of girls basketball out here is bigger than the value of the women's BBL in the UK. And I'm it is. High school girls basketball is valued more here in California than the women's the pro league team is because not only is that all set up, that's standard. Standard procedure, everything of that is just set up. It's just every game, we do it, and it's normal. We as coaches, we just rock up to the game. I don't have to do anything. I just come, I have my stuff, I'm ready to go, just need to know, you know, all our group chat is we're wearing white polos today. Cool, that's it, that's it, we're done. You know, so I remember when 
the head coach said, I need you to go and scout this team. I'm like, cool. Me being me and everyone in British basketball will know exactly what this is. I drive to the game. I get to the gym and I'm expecting to not pay because I'm so used to it. So I get to the game and I'm standing there. There's a line out there and I get there and people are paying. And it still doesn't cross my mind. People line up getting wristbands, whatever, and I just get to the front. And, then, and I'm like, Steve here? She says, yep. I said, Coach Steve here from Sierra Canyon? She's like, yes. I said, I'm not on the list. She said, list? She says, no, no, it's $5, please. I have no cash on me. I look at my wallet. I'm like, I'm like, I've got no cash. She goes, well, there's an ATM uh, on campus. You just need to go. I was like, how embarrassed I was. I was like, yo, I generally thought I could rock up to a game like I do in the UK, women's BBL, sometimes BBL if I've got a hookup, I put my name, right? So now the normal for me, I quickly switch my mindset very quickly is anytime I go and scout a team, I, I check my wallet, I better have $10 in there. And I might, I might want $20 if I want to get some food because they've always got concession stands for you to eat. That to me was like the biggest, you know, it's an overall arching thing. But that's when I was like, God, we're so far behind. Like, it's scary because you're in that bubble, right? You're in, you know it, you're in the bubble. You have those, you want British basketball to be great. You, you're you like, you work so hard in there. You're like, we're doing things right. And then I'm like, this is, there's a 14 year old kid on our bench who knows no different. This is her basketball experience. She might not ever play after high school. But she knows that this is what basketball looks like. We've got parents in the stand come to every single game. We know that we film that game. We're getting it back. And then that's just the experience of the game. I take out everything else that we have on the site. I know it's different because I'm at a very, you know, a very top private high school. But we have four coaches. We have a nutritionist. We have a strength trainer. We have a deal with Huddle. We're a Nike high school elite program, which is only 50 in the, in the U.S., so you can imagine everything that we have at our disposal, a breakdown film, video, nutrition, strength and conditioning. We have, we have a gym that has six hoops that's just ours every practice. So, you know, you know it's just so different. And I think, you know, um, it's a, it was a big shock. I was very, like, kind of naive. Like, ah, it's, you know, and then, then take out that. And then you just look at just strip down the actual talent on the floor and what you're, what you're working with every single day. You know, like last year I worked with our point guard every day who's gone to Texas. You know, like I get to work with that kid every single day on a jump shot on this. And then I'm watching her playing. She's starting for Texas right now. And I'm watching it like, wow, like it's crazy. Like before I coach Holly a couple games in England and then she's watching Oregon and I'm like, it's kind of cool. So I think, you know, that's a, a rambling on kind of me explaining it, right? you know, but it's so different out here um, at the top high school level. I don't want to be like, oh my God, this is everywhere in America. There's some high schools out here that aren't run properly and it doesn't have all the luxuries that we have. But if we're talking about elite, elite, you know, that's where we're at here. And it, the WEABL, even the women's BBL, I'll be honest, like some of the teams don't have what we have out here. And um, yeah, and that's the reality. I don't want, I'm not putting anything down. I'm just being real. That's what I get to deal with on a daily basis. And it's, um, I love it. I like it. It's, I'm blessed to be able to do that, right? So yeah. For sure. When you talk about the learnings, like, you know, and you, you have mentioned it, so you're aware of it, of course, like British basketball is under-resourced compared to, you know, the elite the elite le level high school in, in the States. But but when you talk yeah. about kind of um, your experiences, the learnings, the lessons that without necessarily needing a massive cash influx, in, in, infusion, what we could do yeah. um, with British basketball to raise the level, to improve things, to change the standards, uh, do you think there are obvious, clear wins um, that could be done without needing, you know, a bunch of cash. Yeah, I mean, I get this question asked a lot. Like, what would you do if you know, you're CEO of British Basketball? What would you do? Um, 
You, you know, and it, there's always this discussion around, do you change the top end, so BBL, or do you change the bottom end, like grassroots? Like, where do you start, right? That's, that seems to be the conundrum everyone asks, right? Now, both need cash injections. You can't just say, oh, we're going to put basketball provision to primary schools. Uh, by the way, basketball England missed a massive trip with junior NBA. And I was involved with those conversations. So they can, they can talk about how they did. They missed a massive, massive uh, partnership because they don't have a partnership now. It's, there's no junior NBA league that where it was going to go. They missed a massive trip. We've actually, instead of doing uh, Slam Jam, I don't know, Slam Jam, being yeah. their new, that, that's basically replaced Judy NBA when they made a mistake. And I'm telling you right now, me personally, because I've been involved with those conversations at NBA UK before I left, if they had gone with the NBA and done what they were doing in other countries, you can research it, look at what they're doing in Judy NBA, specifically in Africa, they're doing it, because we're doing it with the South Sudan Basketball Federation. They could have done a win there with little, little cash injection very little to be able to really push primary school basketball but that's a you know i don't want to get too much into it because i don't know everything about it but that was a win that i think they missed the bbl i think it's got better i think we can all admit that especially when i played in it it's got better and there's things around it that could get better but ultimately the bbl is going in the right direction it's not getting worse everyone talks about sky sports with danny lewis and I mean, there was massive ca- cash injection there. And I watched all those games on TV. I'm sure you did. So I think BBL is moving in the right way. There's definitely things that, but again, it's cash injection. So I think, and I thought about this, because I, I had a feeling you might ask me this, but I've been thinking about this for years. I think where we really miss something in British basketball, it, everything comes down to value. So something like the value of high school basketball is you pay to get in. That does not exist in British basketball. So money is not going back in because it's, again, I'm, I'm to deal with this. Namo Shiri's to deal with this. The Denkamp, Midnight Madness, free, 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 free. There's your culture, right? So I'm not going to be here, start pointing fingers. I'm to blame for this of Denkamp being free. And when Denkamp was paid, everyone was getting deals. Everyone was getting scholarships to come. So we already devalued the Denkamp brand early on where he's a millionaire. Why am I paying for it? Well, Kobe Bryant's a millionaire. And everyone pays for his basketball camp. So, you know, we devalued then camp very early. And then when you select people to come to a camp, you're not asking people to pay. So it's, you know, we kind of took that hit already. But I think the value within British basketball is too low of investing in British basketball. So everyone wants a freebie. Neil Hopkins touched on it. You always touch on it. This culture of it's hard for you to sell five pound tickets for Hoop 6 or Five Classic, which is crazy because you're going to go and see some of the best kids ever in the UK for two days and you don't want to pay. You've done a great job of actually selling it out, but that's, I know it's a slug, right? So there's that part. People don't want to pay to watch WBBL. They don't want to pay to watch BBL. Some do, some don't. They don't want to pay to watch junior basketball, which I think is is where the money is. I think um, what's crazy is our parents pay to watch our kids play. I didn't know that. I remember walking out during pregame. I left, and our parents are at the desk paying. They pay to go to that school as well. Some of them do. Some are on scholarship. And I'm like, damn, you're, you're paying to okay. And then I remember when my wife came to one of our games, and I said, I can put you on the list. And she she says, no, I'll pay because it puts money back into your school. It's the mindset of not only her as a person, but yeah, it's basketball. I should pay for it. I'm coming to support. I mean, I I when I was the England under 16 coach, I went to. 20 different clubs to go and scout some kids 
which they were shocked, by the way. Kids and parents and coaches couldn't believe I actually came to watch. And I wasn't asked to do it. I was like, I need to see the kids. So I traveled around everywhere and watched. Not once did I pay to get in. I remember. I remember it because I didn't think of it until when I went to high school and paying. And I was like, when was the last time I paid for a junior game? I never did. And at Brixton, Jimmy Rogers killed me because I made women's BBL games free. He said, why? We, people pay to get in. I was like, no one's going to come to the game. He's like, I don't care. And I'm like, well, I want people to watch the games. And we were fighting with it. Again, I'm putting myself here on the hot seat that I'm to blame for this. And we made games free and people came to watch. People made it a pound, two pound, three. Are people going to watch for it? They don't care. They won't come and watch. So I think the value inside the sport needs to change. I really do. Nick Humby tried. Me and him had this conversation around not paying, you know, paying for the watch GB. I remember you probably knew about it. And then he ended up giving like 90 tickets away to everyone individually because they had no one. And I was like, dude, you, you, you had it. No one comes to watch the games. Your narrative is you can't even pay four pounds to come and watch a GB team and you complain. But then you just gave in. And I get it because no one was going to watch the games. It's going to look terrible. But he tried. But then at the end, he's like, it's not going to work. And it's not going to work overnight, but it needs people to take a stand, like a heavy, like, no, we're not doing it. Like junior basketball, I think, is an easier sell than necessarily like senior basketball where, you know, if you're coming to watch us play, it's a pound to get in. Like it goes back into the club. Then you're getting some... That, I think, is going to take a while to change, but it's not a cash injection from necessarily a big corporate company, but it's actually from people in the game. I think people in the game need to invest more into the sport. That's number one. Now, let's talk about value outside the sport. So that's insular, and I think that's something you can change. The value outside of the sport. I ask people out here what they, you know, like basketball in England or anything like that, or you've done it with your back, remember the Back British Basketball Campaign. Everyone outside of the sport does not value British basketball. They think it's a globetrotter, American sport. So how do we get people outside of the sport to value basketball? That's tough, really tough, because it's not valued within the sport. So if you're outsider coming in, you pay for football, you pay for rugby, you pay for cricket, but you know you don't have to pay for basketball because there's always someone cutting deals it has to start within first. And then I think people outside of the sport will be like, yeah, you just pay to go watch basketball. No problem. Like, I get it. Like, you go pay. And then you look at that, have London Lions outpriced themselves because it was £26 a ticket. I remember when they, I remember I looked to buy a ticket when I was in Canary Wharf and it was like £26 to go. And I'm like, okay, now we're, we're it's got to be a middle ground, right? So is anyone, they probably think investment bankers in, you know, Canary Wharf and that area will pay 20, no, they didn't work, right? So then they drop prices, devalue straight away, you're cutting deals, you're trying to, you know, so I think it's a fine line of trying to find it. And then also I tag into the value of, we don't, people outside the sport can infiltrate our sport. And I put a tweet out about this and everyone was going nuts, messaging me going, who are you talking about? I'm, I'm talking about most people. I would never wake up one day and say, I'm going to go and work in, uh, England football or England rugby and just infiltrate my way in and become like a power head figure how many people we can count over the years how many people have come into our sport because they've been allowed to that's our value like you can come on in you can come into British basketball you're from cricket you're from cycling you're from rugby we don't care come and teach us how to run a sport that we haven't really figured out yet because it's tough but you let you know less about it and you're going to take six months of your time to go and speak to everybody in British basketball. And now you have to believe who? Who are you going to actually believe to make decisions? Because they don't know enough to make their own decisions. They've got to rely on who they spoke to. Most of them speak to the wrong people. They don't speak to young people. They speak to the older heads that have been in it. And then, oh, back in my day when we ran it, now then times are gone. Basketball's different. 
basketball sport is different. Generationals are different. People, young kids aren't like me and you. They're different now. Everyone is different. Coaching is different. Everyone is different in the sport. And we're trying to reinvent the wheel of going back to how it used to run, which I don't know if it was right or wrong, but it's definitely not working. So that value, again, everything I think about when basketball, what's wrong with British basketball, it comes back to the value. Like for us, how many more CEOs are we going to go through that aren't anything to do with basketball? Every CEO that I've, I've spoke to, every one of them, all they do is go and ask people what's wrong. Every one of them. How should we do? What should we do? This person gives their view. And everyone, because you know everyone has their own views because they're so generational, they're so different. You put young people in a room of our generation or younger and say, what do you think? I bet we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. But it's those older heads that creep in and well, but I've been doing it. And that's why this experience part kills me. Like people think that if they've done something longer in British basketball or they've been here longer, they know more. That is absolute BS. You don't need to be in a sport longer to know more. I know more than a lot of people. I haven't been here longer. I've been lucky to play and coach and be around good people that run events. I work with the London 2012 Olympics. I learned a crazy amount from that. I've been fortunate enough that my experiences have fast-tracked me to look at British basketball and go, Actually, I think this is really bad and this is really good. And you should, but it all comes down every time. Every time I think about British basketball, I'm like, man, it's value. The value is so low from everybody, from all angles. Everything is just like, and it, how you change that, I mean, it has to start insulating. It has to start with the how we value it. Um, and I think I was really big on like, now I've changed my mindset because I've only really realized this since being away from the sport. I think you take a step away. And being in LA and looking back and going, oh, I'm out of the bubble now. My my kind of rose tint glasses are off. I know 100%. I, I bought BBL player. It's terrible. It's trash. It doesn't work. We all know this. Everyone's complaining about it. It doesn't work. Um, the cost was crazy at the start. So I waited. I was like, this is definitely going to get bumped down. Why? Because value. <laughs> no one values British part. Two grand a year to watch every team. I think I worked out to be. It wasn't a BBL league pass. It was a BBL team pass. So they branded it wrong. Okay, we brought the money down. They listed everyone. Fine. I knew that was going to happen. So that's what I bought my dad for Christmas. My dad has a BBL league pass. Yeah, he complains all the time. It doesn't work. I'm like, well, but why am I going to complain about something when I can actually just buy something and invest? That's probably the first time I invested in British basketball, which is sad. It's really sad. You know, like I've been involved with it that long. I remember going to BBL games and hitting up players like, yo, can I get a free ticket? Man, I can afford to go and pay £20 to watch you, but I don't do it because value of, of what I know and what we all know is is why when I can get something for free and I'm making a cautious effort I know when I come back to the UK every year if there's something on I'm paying for it if there's if there's um a game that you know a BBL game on I'm gonna pay for it if I come back for your classic I'm paying for it I'm not gonna kick you up but like dude give me a free ticket I probably would have three years ago if I was in the country when it's on but I think it starts with people like me people that haven't invested in British basketball that need to really look at themselves and go, yeah, we complain about everyone else, but until the value rises up a British basketball inside, we can't expect people outside to value it. We, we can't because we don't value it ourselves, you know? And I, I took a lot from Neil Hopkins, what he was saying around like the freebie. I was, and you were nodding as well. And I was watching it like, man, like, yeah, it's what I, exactly, exactly what I think about is this whole freebie mindset. Um, and yes, people like myself are to blame. Dan Camp, Namo Shiri speak about it, Midnight Madness. You know, things are, are free because we haven't valued it enough. I think we, we really need to start valuing British basketball more. 
um yeah and that's kind of my take on it if it makes sense i kind of rambled a bit but yeah Make, makes perfect sense i'm worried time because we've been guys super long let's do some let's do some uh quick fire ones to to wrap up sure um i think i know your answer to this but i'm gonna ask it anyway so best british junior player that you've ever seen i'm going number one uh richard midgley runner-up chris jeremiah but richard midgley number one uh best coach you've ever played for best coach ever played for dave titmus what separates Dave? So, he's. He, I mean, I don't want to gas him up. He's a genius because I thought I knew basketball till I got to Reading. So I'm like, I rely. I think I'm a high IQ basketball player, and you know, I'm playing well at Worthing. You know, we end up winning the league that year. Get over to Reading. You know, I come in. I'm. I'm think I'm hot shot, and he was real quick to be like, "You're not very good in the pick and roll, are you?" I was like, "That's what. That's what. I, that's what I do." And he kind of taught me the first dribble. He said, when you come off pick and roll, I still remember it to the day because I teach my players it. That first dribble off pick and roll, if you haven't created an advantage, get rid of it. And I'll keep onto the ball. I'll be like, keep going. He's like, no, no, that first dribble, this is a small thing, you know, like he, the way he, he, you know, his game adjustments are probably his best part. But um, I remember that and I'm like, yo, all right. And then quickly I became a good pick and roll player that I thought was really good to very, very effective. Like I was just so good in the pick and roll that he created an offense around pick and roll just for me. We never really ran it. Um, but yeah, that and I think game, in-game adjustments, he's, I've never been any, around anybody that can just in an instant just quickly change. Like we're down five and we're up seven like that. And he just quickly changed either a sub, a coverage. He's just way ahead of his, his time, I think. And I think he's evolving now. And I, I watched his, um, his Q&A with Alan Keane that he did. And I was so shocked to see he's changed how he coaches now because he's evolved to, because he, he came from Bobby Knight's kind of stuff. And um. So I think he has that mindset of, um, you know, he's a growth growth mindset guy. So that surprised me. But yeah, Dave, Dave Titmus, uh, a fantastic coach, really, really um, brainiac, very genius. I would, I would, I would go as far as say he's a genius. If you were drafting from all of the players from from Den Camp, who would be your number one pick? Based on based number on them at on, Den Camp. Based on them at Den Camp. Um, what a question. Uh, it's bet- uh, Jules Dangakoda was so good, but so was Dwayne Lottier in the first year. Um, but I'm going to go Michael Number because I didn't think he was that great until I saw Camp. I knew he was good, but my goodness, I was like, this is a pro in the making. So I'm going to go Michael Number. What's your favorite basketball memory? Favorite basketball memory? What a question. Um, I think my favorite basketball memory coaching for England I thought it was playing I remember when I first played for, for England um, I felt like that was like and I remember getting out to Romania our first game and then I was like damn I'm coaching for a national team like this is crazy where I've come from like I've only been coaching like three four years so I think, um, yeah, that was definitely my proudest moment, uh, coaching for a national team. The best uh, individual British basketball performance you've ever witnessed? Oh, wow. I'm going to say, because it stands out, was Pierre-Henry Fontaine 
scoring 65 points at Crystal Palace against London Towers. I was on the bench, didn't play much because he was under 20s. Kevin Cader was there for some reason. I don't know what he was doing there. And he called him an unstoppable train or something like that. And he, he didn't miss. He just dunked on everyone. Yeah, I remember that thinking, my God, Pierre Fontaine is King P. Because he nicknamed himself that, which none of us did. I wanna, no one at Elon Tornado's nicknamed him King P. He named it himself because that's how Pierre is. But I remember I was like, wow, that, that stands out. He had 65 and it was just he was unstoppable. It was just, just dominating. You know, he, He's in the mix for best junior player, but still midgety. But yeah. And then finally, uh, looking to the future, what's in store for, for, for you over the next sort of three to five years? What, what are your goals? Where are you trying to get to? And what would you like to be involved with? Good question. So if we had this conversation six months ago, it would have been different. Right now, heavily my time and resources and energy is towards the South Sudan Basketball Federation, with Luol being named president in this, uh, this time last year, it was uh, December. Um, huge success so far. You know, we brought in some British kind of uh, stuff that we found worked for us at Den Camp. Um, uh, but my goal, our goal for that federation in five years is to be a powerhouse in Africa. We're ranked number 98 in the world and 16 in Africa. We want to be um, top five in Africa and, and top 25 in the world. That's our goal. Um, we think we can. Uh, in a short time in a year, we've already jumped 29 spots. So, um, but that's the men's team. You know, a big part of my heart is uh, is female basketball. Spoke with Luol actually asked me to be the assistant coach for the women's team. So, and we have a women's NBA coach, hopefully going to be the women's uh, the head coach. So I think the South Sound Basketball Federation is going to be a big focus for me, not only just the, org- the organizational part, because my role in that is, uh, you know, basketball operations, but just creating, and it's going to sound really bad, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I feel like what I potentially could have done with British basketball and with Luol, because that's a story for another day, but he's been heavily, heavily disregarded and left out of British basketball. Everyone feels like it's the other way around. That could be another day for a whole topic of me explaining. I've been heavily involved with how British basketball very slowly made it out that he isn't interested. And that's why I sent you that video around him saying he still wants to help. A part of me felt like I should have pushed more and really made uh, British basketball listen to Lowell and get more involved, both of us. And it never happened. So a part of me is what we could have done with British basketball because it's definitely not going to happen anymore because all our time and resources now with South Sudan basketball is that we, we create what we could have done. Uh, it's a lot more work because we have a blank slate, you know, British basketball was way more, you know, had way more foundation set with leagues and, you know, all that type of stuff. But yeah, I would say short term five years is that South Sudan basketball federation is running well. We're highly ranked in the world and, you know, me and the world can say, you know, uh, that's something that pr- probably could have done British basketball, but maybe it's something we we needed to do with South Sudan Basketball Federation. So, yeah. Wow. That's a perfect place to leave it. I think uh, we're approaching three hours. It's going to be the longest pod that I've done, I think. Um, oh, my God. So, Jeez. Uh, <laughs> wow. But, no, I, I really appreciate wow. you taking the time. It's uh, been long overdue. And I think uh, definitely at some point there's so much stuff that we haven't spoken about. Um, we'll have to do a, a part two. So, yeah, thanks for taking the time. And I uh, wish you all the best with this season. And hopefully, 
all COVID dependent, but uh, hopefully I'll see you back in the UK uh, 2021 summer uh, for Den Camp. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thanks for having me. Um, happy New Year to you and everyone because um, it's that time of year. So let's hope 2021 brings us a bit more basketball, right? So yeah, uh, but I appreciate you having me, man. Speak to you soon. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. But you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now. Uh, open up your podcast player. Go to the Hoops Fix podcast. You'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.